These freaks are dedicated, hardworking people. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. Michael Bailey, Scott Gardner, and Chris Honeywell. Hello and welcome to... We are experiencing technical difficulties. Please stay tuned. We are experiencing technical difficulties. Please stay tuned. We are experiencing technical difficulties. Please stay tuned. Quick, get it back up! Hurry! We are experiencing technical difficulties. Please stay tuned. Are we all clear? Oh, okay, we're all clear. Great. All right, hit the red button. No, not that button! That was that odd. Was... That was weird. That was very well, weird. Well, just died. I heard. Hello and welcome. Yeah, exactly. And, and then I didn't hear anything. Yeah, as soon as I started to, to say that, it cut right out. That's odd. Did that, did that screw up? Are you recording yeah, still? Yeah, it's back recording now. I mean, even if I lost everything prior to that, it was like a minute and a half maybe. So, All right, let me just start all over again. I wonder if I... <laughs> did I peek out? I wonder. I don't think that would cut the call. It would cut, just... I mean, Make your that's voice not, cut off. Yeah, that's the only thing I could think of. That That's very strange. All right, well, let's hope that doesn't happen again. <clears throat> All right, here we go. Hello, and welcome to Two True Freaks. This is Comics Monthly Monday, number 34. I am Scott Gardner, and I am joined, as always, by two of my bestest pals in the whole goddamn universe, First of all, we've got Chris Honeywell, who I don't know that we ever sort of point this sort of thing out, so I'm going to do it this time around, who also is part of the vault of startling monster horror, Tales of Terror, and Chris is also the media masochist. Say hi, Chris. Hi, Chris. <laughs> and... We are joined by Michael Bailey, also of Views from the Long Box, From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, a brand new show that just started up, and I thoroughly enjoyed the first episode, which is Bailey's Batman podcast, and also Tales of the Justice Society of America. Mike Bailey, say hello, sir. Hello, sir. 
just, I just had to do that. But so no, far, everybody's seriously. been just saying what Scott says. <laughs> just his dream world. Hey, uh, exactly. Yeah, I was about just to... repeating after me, and, that, and we'll all just get along. Welcome to Scott's Orwellian Echo Chamber. <laughs> Scott, you are so handsome and smart. Mm-hmm. It's a pleasure you to do a podcast your with you. <laughs> your voice is like melted gold. I, I, I heard I'm, that, I'm, Bailey. I, I'm thoroughly convinced that you told me to get a haircut hippie on Facebook <laughs> because you're just <laughs> jealous. <laughs> you're just jealous of my flowing locks. That's right. Scared by. <laughs> scared just. Well, true. And and after seeing that picture, I realized, Jesus Christ, me and the treadmill got to get some FaceTime <laughs> and like soon. <laughs> oh, my God. And I'm the opposite. I'm the opposite hair extreme. Well, I got my hair. It's just all below the neck. <laughs> See, I, I, I can say nothing about that because, yeah, I, I, I feel a like gorilla, man. I, I feel like no, no, uh, the, the treadmill thing. I, you know, I oh. sympathize with Mike because, you know, on my recent vacation, I took just megatons of pictures. And every time I was actually in one of the pictures and I looked back at it, I just had the same thought every single time, which was, you know, I, I was like Buzz Lightyear in, in Toy Story 2 when he sees, him, you know, the other Buzz Lightyear and he looks at it and just goes, am I really that fat? You know, that's every time I saw the picture, I had the same thought. Oh, oh, so, yeah. I, I, I thought you were about to say that you said you thought you're a sad, strange little yeah, man. All that too. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an ass. <laughs> oh, so how you guys doing? All right. Like we have a fantastic hour already. You are fantastic. All right. Not fantastic. that we haven't already been jabbering for an hour already. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we're all well, well. At least we're warmed up. You know that that's the that's the important thing. It is that uh, you know because sometimes when you go right into recording, uh, Scott and I used to have this before we would talk for like six hours before getting down to recording right. an episode. <laughs> I always felt like like we would we would just launch into random chit chat because we were. We realized we just really just wanted to catch up for a little while, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before, um, before we got going, so we found that it's better uh, for a while there to record back to the bins beforehand because we could go on tangents like crazy on that show, <laughs> and it and it just made sense. And then when we would get to tales, it's like, okay, we're warmed up, let's go. Right. So it does make for some some crazy tangents when you you dive straight in without the 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 preamble without the warm-up yeah so that 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 being said this show's gonna be like a a laser beam of of focus and uh yeah Yeah, right and what i'm what i'm digging about this show is actually i'll be honest with you some of my favorite bits end up being the shit that i throw in at the end of the show that's usually the first stuff recorded because it was all the preamble that's to me that's actually some of the funniest stuff is the stuff that by all rights should have wound up on the cutting room floor or shouldn't have even been recorded anyway you know yeah some of that stuff i've really gotten a kick out of and i don't I, i i'm assuming the listeners as well but i don't know nobody's really commented one way or the other but our numbers are great on this show, so we're doing something right. Yeah, you yeah. can leave in that whole part where I was talking about watching, getting my jollies off the granny porn, right? I don't care. 
<laughs> hey, look, you know, when boobs hang that low, it's just, it's it's like instant hard on. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's not. <laughs> Scott ever the voice of reason. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I figured we were still telling him what he wanted to do. I mean, telling him the truth. That's right. <laughs> So what do we want to do first, fellas? Do we want to dive straight into The Walking Dead? Is that zombie land? Yeah. The Walking Dead. Alrighty, and I have got the synopsis. (laughs) Wow. I finally (laughs) caught on. I love that. The virus is spreading. (laughs) I figured, you know, if I'm on the if I'm on a two true freak show, that's how I have to say it. Because I've been I've been barreling through like the past couple months of Star Trek Monthly Mondays and, and every time someone says Schnapkin, I just start chuckling inside. <laughs> just, yeah, all you gotta do when you're on a Two True Freaks podcast is pretend that Listen. you woke up in the in the happy home with a nice lobotomy and, <laughs> you know, you're very happy and contented and you love giving well, of things. Well, what I'm Jack Nicholson at the end of uh, One Flew or the Cuckoo's Nest? <laughs> is that what you're wanting there? Well, not quite to the point of where a giant American Indian has to smother you to death, but yeah, yeah, somewhere, <laughs> somewhere. Maybe Jack Nicholson in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest after his first treatment of... Uh, electroshock therapy you know <laughs> that was actually a gag once when uh when i was when i had gotten hurt uh at, during play practice when i was a junior in high school and and um they had, i was stuck in the emergency room for a little while and my friend eric uh, told me he's like well if i was there and saw the mistreatment i would have picked up the water cooler thrown it out the window and <laughs> run into the night <laughs> with gentle flute music playing and the yeah you know, for uh, some reason, I have no idea why, but suddenly I just realized that, you know, there's this movie trailer that I've suffered through like a dozen times now. And I just realized how this movie that I have absolutely no interest in could suddenly be potentially my new favorite movie if at the end of it they had somebody going, Contagion! Where it's actually oh. about, like, everybody's catching, like, the stupid virus, you know? <laughs> I think that would be awesome. I think that movie could really, you know, I think it could benefit from that. Instead of Scott, that isn't a movie. That's everyday life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was yeah. About, was it's just not make. spreading quite that fast, but you know, speed. I don't know. And that could be the that could be the new movie. I don't know. <laughs> now the, I actually thought that that the the next film by the guys that did. Uh, Hot Fuzz and Shaun of the Dead should be about when an alien invasion film where it turns out like in that issue of Star Trek comics where the aliens are just stupid <laughs> and just know how to push the buttons. Yes. But they're not. Backleds, yeah. yeah. So uh, I think that would be great. But, uh, but I have got the synopsis to Walking Dead number 38 done by the usual collection of sketchy characters of um, Robert Kirkman and why am I blanking on the name of the fucking artist? Uh, Charlie Adler. <laughs> Charlie Adler. <laughs> Charlie Adler. Uh, we open on the cliffhanger from last issue where Lori was about to tell Rick that she and Shane had made the beast with two backs before Rick showed up. And by the way, the kid might not be yours. Rick cuts her off saying he knows something happened. Frankly, given all of the shit that is going on, he doesn't care. She, Lori, Carl, and the new baby are the only things he has left in the world. 
So while he understands why she did what she did, and while he also accepts it, he just can't hear her say it. Lori tells Rick that she loves him. Cut to Andrea waking up in the RV with Tyrese's feet in her face. Axel enters the RV and asks if someone can relieve him so he can grab some sleep. Andrea heads outside, followed by Tyrese, and they discuss finding uh, what the National Guard base they are looking for. They spot a roamer nearby, and we find out pretty quick that Tyrese sucks with firearms. He asks Andrea to give him some pointers when they get back to the prison, since she is she is such a crack shot, proved by her blowing off the roamer's head. The gunshot wakes everybody up, and after some discussion on getting Glenn or Michonne to show him show them how they got to that road they found by running through the woods, they head out. Back at the prison, Lori gets a checkup, and we find out that while she isn't ready to download her kid just yet, uh, it's going to happen soon, which is fine by her because she is so damn sick of being pregnant, it's not even funny. In the RV, the gang finds Woodbury, Georgia, but still have no idea how to locate the National Guard station. Axel heads outside to unleash the hound, as Glenn calls it, and ends up pissing on the sign that tells them where the guard station is. Cut back to the prison where Herschel and another survivor who were the, for the fucking life for me, I can't figure out who this is. They never say her name. I just... I just blanked while reading this. I can't so, remember her name. It's a woman who used to date Otis, so... So, uh, but but she and Herschel talk about all of the people that have died. Oh, and how, the guard, how nicely the garden is coming along. Tyrese and the gang find the guard station, and after an uncomfortable exchange between Michonne and Tyrese, Glenn scares the living shit out of Tyrese by driving up in an armored vehicle. The station has its own gas station, and Tyrese tells Glenn to start filling gas cans up as quick as he can. Axel finds some grenades, or what's left of the grenades, actually, while Andrea and Michonne talk about whether anyone in the group knows how to drive a tank. Cut back again to the prison, where Billy gets some aspirin from Alice and asks her if she can del deliver the baby. She replies that she hopes so, but really doesn't know. Once the gang at the guard station load up everything they can, Andrea gets the bright idea to blow the place up, and so they blow that place up real good. While on the return trip uh, to the prison, Maggie gets her own bright idea to hit the Walmart they passed, since the governor's people are probably going to be too busy checking out the explosion to notice. Soon they are all like, Alfred, let's go shopping. Maggie grabs two cribs, because while she doesn't know if she's pregnant, it might be a good idea to grab an extra one anyway, considering how much she and Glenn fuck. <laughs> they haven't been grabbing condoms, that's for yeah. sure. Tyrese and Glenn make loading plans uh, as far as their supplies, uh, while t with Tyrese mentioning he doesn't want to be there much longer. Suddenly, Glenn looks outside, and walking towards the store are four armed and pissed off looking men. And that's where it ends. That's always where these comics end. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. True. A couple of those guys. Uh... Three of the four guys is armed with automatic... They look like M16s yeah. to me, but yeah, definitely automatic weapons. So yeah, these guys are not screwing around. Yeah, but... You see, I forget the next issue. Yeah, I can't remember what happens, yeah. 
I but remember what happens. When uh, okay. I saw the machine guns, I'm like, okay, they got machine guns, but there's still more of the people in the guard station. Michonne's there, and they're fucking armed, too. So this isn't going to be a walk for these guys coming up to the Walmart. Well, you never, you can't count out Andrea because she is... Yeah, a, yeah just, she can sit from like a fucking... A sniper, yeah. She can find sporting goods and <laughs> hole up there and just pick them all off one yeah. at a time, so... Not that uh, it's really important, but that woman's name is Patricia. Patricia, that's yeah. right. Yeah. I, I couldn't figure it out. I'm sorry. Uh, there's I, actually, I, there's I a, uh, if you go to walkingdead.wikia.com slash wiki slash characters, it gives you all the characters from both the TV show and the comics and their status, whether they are, what is it here? Living Alive, dead, undead? dead, undead, or unknown. And I have to use this every time I write a synopsis because yeah. I just can't remember the names of all the characters. There's so many characters. I mean, yeah. they used to in the comics, they, you would just have two or three pages dedicated to all the characters are in a short history of them just to keep you up on. Yeah. And, I, and I've and i had to use it repeatedly, especially, you know, in these early comics where more people are alive. Yeah. <laughs> it gets yeah. easier as time goes on. Yeah. <laughs> keep track of... Uh, what the character and plus as time goes on you get you you, you learn people's names more mm-hmm. i i didn't oh, buy it so i may be i may be wrong about this but i think that there has now been a, a basically a a walking dead version of who's who that had all of the characters i think yes I, yeah no, i know i have the first issue of it oh, okay. i have the first issue of it it is it does exist okay. yes i should pick up the other issues of it come to think of that now Speaking of I which, just, there's a there's a novel that's either out or coming out that's uh, supposed to be the I can't remember the name of it. It's the Rise it, of the Governor. Rise of the Governor. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Are you gonna yeah, that, you guys gonna get that? Um, I don't know. I you know if I can find it cheap, I will. And and that's not an insult yeah. against the character or anything. It's just I like to find things cheap. It's gonna be but, text, right? It's is it gonna be like a paperback novel. novel or? Yeah. But I read the preview of it. The what was it, chapter two or whatever that they put? It was a couple issues ago in the current, you know, current time of Walking Dead. He put an excerpt of it in there, and it was written in a very interesting style. It wasn't written in a no- normal novel style. It was almost like it was written like you would write for a comic book. You know, you had to almost picture it like a comic book. And once I start, at first I was like, ah, this is kind of awkward prose. But then it was like, okay, I can see it now, you know. And it sort of ran like a Walking Dead comic. I'd be interested in it. The the only thing that makes me like a little reticent about the whole thing is I don't know if I want to see the rise of this guy as a douchebag, you know. Well, I think it's going to be ugly by that chapter yeah. two. The character I think that I think probably is going to end up being the governor and where it was going is really ugly. <laughs> I just, um, plus in a prose novel, Kirkman would probably be able to even set the bar a little bit higher. Yeah. As to where he could go with it. I mean, I, I think that guy was a malignant force of nature in the comics. So I really don't want to see, cause my but fear those are is interesting characters. <laughs> That is true, but my fear is is that he started out as a pretty normal guy that just got drunk with power, and I've seen that shit before. What was that movie with Ben Kingsley where he was... uh, Gandhi. 
No, not Gandhi. It was the one that was the opposite of Gandhi, where he was a gangster. <laughs> that that uh, it was oh a sexy beast. It was called Gandhi, sexy Gandhi two electric Gandhi boogaloo. Two. Gandhi two. He's not fucking around. This he's Gandhi two. He's pissed. Gandhi two electric vindaloo. <laughs> an eye for an eye makes all you fuckers go blind. <laughs> he's back, and this time. He's mad. Gandhi 2. No more Mr. Passive Resistance. He's out to kick some butt. This is one bad mother you don't want to mess with. Don't move, slang boy. He's a one-man wrecking crew. But he also knows how to party. Give me a stick. Medium rare. Hey, Baldy! There is only one Have law. you guys ever seen a UHF? Gandhi 2. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I own UHF. It's classic. It's I weird out. DVD, man. Love that movie. So, who's going first with their thoughts? Gay. I'll go. Uh, since Scott seems to be just blubbering in the corner. I'm collecting I, my thoughts. I'll be back in a couple of days. I was about to say. We don't I love. <laughs> yeah, right. There's I. I. I pulling it. I'm Are sorry. you done? So, yeah, I'm done. All right. I don't want to have to hit you with the tranquilizer dart. Welcome to Two True Freaks. Don't change it. You have to force a pill into his mouth and then, like, rub his throat to make it go down. <laughs> I'm sorry, Mike. We are just totally walking all over you in this episode. It's almost like podcasting with Jeffrey Taylor, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> what were you about to say, dude? Welcome to Two True Freaks. Love you. <laughs> <laughs> I still need to see that movie, but that, that yes, you do. made me laugh. You do. Yes, you you're do. Totally need to you, you're, de- you're really depriving yourself of great <laughs> pleasure by and pain by not watching it. Anyway, I will say that I really like this issue because it's like a hybrid of an actioner and an in-betweener. It's got some of the in-betweener type stories where The Walking Dead calms down. Even though not a lot happens, like action-wise, it's just pretty exciting when they find something like an armory. Yeah, start stocking up on gas and blowing it up and stuff like that. So I, I, I really like this. It's, it's one of those, one of those issues where there've been a couple of them lately. Where you know, I mean, the big, the, the big um, threat at the end of the last one was, was basically just a personal issue that with Rick and Lori. In, instead of you know some sort of existential zombie or or enemy fight like at the end of this one, and uh, so so you know it's just doing that grateful or that Grateful Dead that Walking Dead thing, <laughs> man. It's just doing that Grateful. Dead. It's like it's like the comic is jamming, man. Have we seen a zombie with a Grateful Dead T-shirt yet? No, but we should have. We by, should have seen that by now. Now that no, you no, because that. they're all following the dead. <laughs> <laughs> they're all in the parking lot, man. Wouldn't that be funny if if like the the remaining alive members of uh of the grateful dead were like zombies wandering around together and the fucking fans are still following still following them around yeah (laughs) 
that's what that giant herd was in like what was that like in the 60s or 70s of this yes yeah, the big herd they ran across it was just a, a dead show yeah concert yeah <laughs> there's like rotten falafel falling out of their stomach cavities and stuff like that they still smell like patchouli though they don't smell much different than they did before like ass and patchouli <laughs> <laughs> no more veggie burritos for them though you could you could toss a vegetarian thing right out the window now <laughs> anyway what was i oh it was doing that walking dead thing where you know it's been calmed down a little bit but now they're just he's starting to throw in you know more troubles more trouble and more elements are just starting to pile up so it's starting to build a little bit of tension again. And the art in this one is 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 great. Although the one there was one in the beginning with, with Rick and Laurie where Rick just looks pretty sketchy. He he looks actually kinda like a Neanderthal. Where where she's telling him she she loves him and he's just sort of like got his lip pooched out. There's just something about that drawing that looks a little bit eh. But otherwise, he does look a little caveman. You're yeah, right. he does. He's got you know the brow working, and his hair's a little, little mess. Must yes, <laughs> a little bedhead working. But uh, yeah, I I I really like this episode, and it, and it always has that that thing, and it's got a little uh, foreshadowing with the tank. And a little thing where she's like, hey, let's just make one more stop off. And that's the classic, don't make oh. one more stop off. You got the gas, you got some weapons, you blew up the place, get home. But it's like, no, nah, let's stop like, off just... at Walmart. Yeah, but you know what? That's like my everyday life. And usually stopping off at Walmart is the worst thing you can do ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like it's going like, to the basement, you know? It's, it's like Rachel and I went there today and we're like, we're just going to run in. We're going to get the, the little bit of red modeling paint and the 12 pack of Coke. And we're going to be out of there. And like 45 minutes later, we're standing in line. And <laughs> it's terrible. So, yeah, the downfall of humanity going to Walmart. Uh huh, and the and the greeter that that's going to be at this Walmart is just not going to be the kindly old man that you. <laughs> it might be the kindly old man, but he's hungry now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's not going to say get your shit and get out. He's going to say get your shit over here. That so would have I- been awesome if like they opened the door and there's like an old guy and his greeter. You know, welcome to Walmart. You know, welcome to Walmart. Like, yeah, coming out. <laughs> and they shoot him, and one of them says, "I always wanted to do that." <laughs> yes, <laughs> finally. <laughs> oh, this zombie apocalypse was worth it for this one glorious moment. No matter I what, die happy now. No matter what you do, no matter when you, when you do it, it's always going to be an act of mercy. That's all <laughs> I'll say. <laughs> and if that makes you sleep better at night, go for it. Yeah, no. <laughs> I really only had two things on this one, honestly. Uh, I love the dialogue between uh, Rick and Lori in the beginning. This this really felt very realistic to me, mm-hmm. you know, as as something a, a couple that has this between them might really say to one another, you know, in this horrible situation. I really liked that. I, I enjoyed that scene quite a bit. Not at all the way uh, I thought it was going to play out. But I, I like it playing out this way uh, much better than than the way I thought it was going to go, which was this huge 
thing that was going to be between them and everything. Well, it made me start, you know, a lot of people really hate, have hated Laurie from the, you know, there's a lot of hate for her character mm-hmm. in this. And, and by this point, this is when I was starting to really like her. Once all their, once all the dirty laundry started getting aired and stuff, and you started really seeing the nature of her and Rick's relationship, I started liking her. You know, I started, I, I really didn't, and, and I never really hated her in the beginning, but, you know, definitely you just you you're more skewed towards say Rick and you don't like the fact that his wife cheated on him or whatever with the kind of douchey guy. Well what's but, funny is that I never saw that with this with the comic uh Lori on the television show I do not like at all and I see you know I think they play off I think they play off I think the TV show maybe they might be playing up on on her unlikability Right, because of what happened in the comics, you know, or what the yeah. people's reaction to the comics, I should say. Yeah. Well, to me, whenever you're in a in a situation that is extremely stressful, like, and and yes, this is like the most extreme version of that. But you know, if you're if you're like you've got somebody in the hospital, and you know a life changing event may be going on, most people to cope become extremely rational about the event because it's the only way they can deal deal with it mentally like i've right. got to put this in terms that i understand and i think with you know rick says you know you know i i've thought about this i've accepted this and and i can honestly see him having the thought well you know she thought i was dead she didn't know what was going on and she wouldn't have slept with shane if this never happened so right. I can't Sh- really blame her for what what happened. And psychologically, Shane was like the closest thing to Rick, yeah, that she had. You know, he was almost. It was probably a lot of it was her was his connection to Rick that made it attractive to her, or something that she did. You know, so yeah, and 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 you know, as time goes on, we just learn the depths of Rick's pragmatism. You yeah. Know? I love the line where he's just like, "Listen, as long as I've got, I'm paraphrasing it, but he's, you know, it's like as long as I've got you and Carl, I don't need you to be perfect. You know, yeah. I just need you guys to be alive and here, and I don't need you to be perfect. What can be perfect <laughs> at that point? You know, but, but the beauty of this scene is not that because it could have just ended right there with them just kind of looking at each other. But then you have the next page where, you know, you have the the sh- the heavily shadowed Rick saying, "I I can't hear you say it." And the look on Lori's face, you know, like that that that, you know, totally guilt but loves this man with all of her heart and she, you know, she she hugs him and holds on to him and 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 I I agree with Scott. It just felt like a very real situation. Right. Like this could freaking happen, you know, and, and, and there are moments and, and nothing like this has obviously ever happened with my, me and my wife, because one, she's never cheated on me. And two, there's never been a zombie apocalypse as far as I know. Um, I think I would have noticed that there probably would have been something on the news, but there are those moments where you let shit go and you just realize that it's your love for each other. That's going to keep you going. So you just hold on to that. Right. So well, the other I agree th- with Scott. There you go. <laughs> the other thing I really liked in this one was uh, I, I liked the 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 sort of 
And it's done very, very, very subtly, but I like the breaking of stereotype here where uh, Tyrese, we, we both see it and he admits himself that he sucks with guns. You know, there's a, the part where he shoots at the zombie and completely, I think he hits it in the shoulder. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, he, he just admits, he says, I suck at that. He says, I'm just terrible with a gun. I like that part. I like it a lot. Yeah, he actually... he, well, he doesn't, he doesn't like a lot of people would have written his character to maybe start to like have some comment or something when Andrea takes a gun from him, but he's, he, he, you know, has no problem handing it over to her and just going, here, you deal with this. You know, you know, you know what you're doing. I don't know what I'm doing. Right. Which, you know, and he's, he's, you know, definitely like a very macho character, but at the same time, he's sort of like Rick, he's a pragmatist, you know, and, you know, a lot of writers would have put some scene where he would have been like, oh, well, you know, I, I had a rock in my shoe or something, or, you know, I was just a little startled there. I would have gotten him, but he's right. like, nope. Nope, I suck. And, and yeah, just, I like that too. While I remember this, waking up with Tyrese's feet in your face reminded no. me of staying the weekend at Scott's house or staying <laughs> at Scott's house. Because if you didn't wake up before him, he would sneak into, you know, I, I stayed in this like side bedroom and you would wake up and like you would open your eyes like, oh, I'm awake. And you'd be like, what, what's that in my face? And it would be a fucking foot with a dirty sock on it. Just sitting there patiently waiting for you to wake up. Well, so Rachel and I will be getting a hotel if we ever go to Florida. <laughs> Very good. Thank you for the heads up. No, no, I think you used luck, to call that a sneaky pee, actually. Yes, yes, we did. <laughs> um, for me, the strength of this episode, uh, the episode issue uh, was not like one particular moment, but that it was a series of great moments. Uh, you know, you, you have the opening scene that we talked about with with Lori and Rick. You have the scene, uh, the other scene Scott talked about between Tyrese and Andrea. And all of these conversations just feel very natural to me. Like, like it's like I felt comfortable reading this book because all of these characters were in character. One weird note, I think it's page 10 where Alice is giving Lori the checkup. That middle panel, Lori looks like one of those aliens that like Riker had sex with on the androgynous <laughs> planet. Yes, her just, forehead's like, a hair. little bit high there, yeah. that picture. Yes. But if you just cut off like everything to the left of her, and everything to the right with her, and you just kind of make a rectangle of her. It looks like she peed on that bed. Yes, you're right. And then I realized, oh, it's just shading. I'm like, is she like leaking? I mean, what the hell? Um, I love the fact that Kirkman thought enough about the scene to figure out what the sound effects of someone urinating would sound like. <laughs> And puts it into the comic. And I love the look at his face when he picks up that piss-soaked sign, looks at Glenn and goes, check it out. We need to go right. Glad I peed right next to the RV now. I love Axel. He's just... that's how Axel sounds in my head, by the way. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Axel talks like a real biker prison guy. You know, he's just... I. 
Yeah. If uh, he winds up on the TV show, I pray to God that he's played by that guy. I, I have no idea what the guy's name is, but he's one of those character actors you see in a lot of different movies. Um, I remember he was in uh, uh, Total Recall for like a split second. He was the guy on the train when Schwarzenegger's looking out the window at the giant... I think it's... Uh, what is that giant mountain on Mars? Uh Oh, shit, I can't think of the name of it. Olympus Mons or something like that. Excuse me, what's that? You mean the pyramid mine? I used to work there until I found that alien shit inside. Well, that's a rumor, isn't it? I think so. He always plays like a biker or something like that. I, I think he might have been in Starman, too. I think he might have been the trucker that goes into piss. And then uh, uh, Jeff Bridges is standing there watching him piss. And he says something like, I every goddamn place you go. And then he zips up and yeah. flips him off. I think I think that's, I could be wrong, but I think that's the same guy. But he's been in a, a zillion movies and almost always plays like a big bearded biker or trucker or something like that. Was he that in guy that would be episode great. of The Incredible Hulk where he played the retarded kid, Ricky? Um... You probably have no idea. I, I don't. I, yeah, okay, it's been sorry. so long since I, I'm. I think I know who you're talking about, though. Synopsis. So. Synopsis. Um, <laughs> my favorite, my favorite moment of this entire issue, though, is when Andrea looks at Tyrese and goes, "You know, we got all we need. Let's blow this shit up so no one else can use it." Mm-hmm. That is just great. It's just, and he thinks about it for a panel, and the next panel is them driving off as there's a giant explosion behind them. Do you guys think it took them a little long to figure out that that was uh, somewhere they needed to go, was a National Guard armory, and and start stocking up on weapons and things? It seems like that took a long time to happen. Because that, you know, above finding shelter and food, that would be one of the first things I would want to do, is go read a National Guard armory somewhere. but But look at the timeline. I mean, they found the prison, and almost immediately they had a serial killer to deal with. Yeah. So they get that taken care of, and then they're like, "Well, let's go look for shit." And their party ends up in like a freaking Sam Peckinpah movie. Well, that's yeah. They're uh, they're, they're figuring it out as they go along, and they didn't really think of an outside threat, except for the zombies until Woodbury. You know. Yeah. Now, so now they're thinking, "Let's get. We need to get some weapons." You know, and they're becoming militarized because they realize yeah. they kind of have to be. You know, before it was just about survival. We need shelter. We need food. We need to get away. We need to get away from the flesh-eating zombies. Now they you have know? to be proactive because they have enemies that, that are mm-hmm. intelligent. Yeah, like like these fuckers are coming for us, and we got to be prepared. So how do we prepare? Be prepared. Well, there's a National Guard armory. I should have had a V8, and they go. And yeah. the whole Walmart scene was was fine. It, it kind of bugged me that they were stopping. Like when I was re- rereading the issue, because I had forgotten what happened, I'm like, "Why are you fucking?" St- oh, nice cliffhanger. Okay, I'm down with this. You can't. And this is why Walking Dead works sometimes better as a monthly read, because then you have then to in wait the trades. Yeah, yeah. Because in the trades they go quick. I know this because for six weeks back in September of like 2008, like er, like every week I was buying two more trades when I would get paid. Right. Yeah. And but if I would have had to, you know, and I'm waiting a month for this because I'm rereading it as it happens instead of going and rereading all of the trades again that I have. Um, 
it adds to the dread of the whole yes. thing. Yes, yeah, for and sure. It, and and it, and it, and, it, and it proves that this book works both ways because people love buying the trades. And it's and it's just a val as valid a way to read it as buying it monthly. But it's like if you buy it monthly, you get like the exclusives. I like having um, something to look forward to. Yeah, to each exactly. Month. But I'll tell you, you know, that there's a certain trade that ends with a moment that made me go, "Holy shit! I got to wait six months for this." <laughs> so it kind of it can kind of work both ways. Man, this is like the longest letters column ever. <laughs> the le- yeah. The letters column of Walking Dead is its own thing altogether. They, they, re- they, they, it's one of the best letters columns ever. It's funny because I, I hardly ever read the letters column in Walking Dead. I don't know why. Half of the letters are really interesting. Half of the letters are, are by stupid people wanting the, him to do stupid things and he'll tell them as such, which I like that too. Could you, you make know, Rick a cyborg? Yeah, yeah. I think Rick All should be stuff. a cyborg. I mean, there's people who seriously ask him that stuff, <laughs> you know, ask for that stuff or make, sugge- you know, total fanboy suggestions and yeah, yeah he doesn't put up with it. It's, I, I like reading that stuff. You know, it would be really cool if you had a guy that looked like me, that had my name, that came in and became the hero. He was, I think and he a was a kick-ass idea. ninja. Yeah. And He's got to be fat, though. He's got to be a fat ninja, because <laughs> no one would expect that. Right, but with a hot girlfriend. With a bow and arrow. <laughs> what Named issue is Mary Rick going to die in? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Or, you know, or you can't kill that character. You know, you you know, you've gone too far this time. You've killed this character. You've just you've crossed the line, which <laughs> is just the most pointless letter to write to The Walking Dead, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. But yeah, that's about all my. Yep, me too. My thoughts on yeah, this I'm one. Good. Great issue. Well, if we go in our normal sequence, then this is uh, this would be the pretty much the normal opener of the show when we go into what was new for us in the world of comics since last month, since last Comics Monthly Monday. And uh, I don't know well, who wants to go first with this. I know I got a ton of shit. I suspect that Michael Bailey has a ton of shit. So <laughs> I have just a little li- one one thing sort of semi-comics yeah no you can you can file it under comics for sure because it's in the name is i may be going to new york comic-con on the 13th 13th through the 15th or 16th next one it's a thursday through sunday dealio and might is the the really you know (laughs) i i I really want to stress that because it all hinges on me getting a press pass and getting in for free because otherwise it ain't happening. But I did apply for a press pass. So I'm telling all the listeners out there in case there's any listeners in New York City, which I know there are, um, you know, I want to hook up. So if um, <laughs> what's so funny about that? Sorry, just the other connotation of the term hookup. Oh, yeah, that's what the teenagers talk about these days. Depending on who you are, maybe I'd want to hook up, but by the general <laughs> the general demographic of our audience, no, I do not want to hook up that way. But I would, you know, 
I'm uh, since I am broke, I would, I, I, you know, if anybody has a nice comfy couch that I could crash on, that would help a lot because a hotel room in New York City ain't happening for me <laughs> in uh, the near future. If not, if I can't find anybody, it's New York City, so I could just wander the streets until something comic-y happens at New York Comic Con. But if I go there, I'm gonna try and go for all four days and. You know, bring my camera and bring my recording equipment, and and uh, I don't even know what's going on at it. I don't even know who's going to be there or anything like that. You know, I just know there'll probably be a ton of really cool people there, and I'll track down whoever I track down with my camera. But I would love to meet up with. Most of all, I would love to meet up with our our New York City listeners. I know there's a whole slew of them in that area, and yep. who may be going to Comic Con or maybe. And even if you're not going to Comic-Con, it's New York City. You know, maybe we can meet up and go get food. And um, I'll just say this. Chris Honeywell loves Mexican food, like real Mexican food. Like the kind, you know, if you were Mexican that your mom made you. That's what I'm looking for in New York City. If you can find me that, I would be a happy, happy, happy camper. So, yeah, you know, uh, come to the forum or... Or hit, hit me up on the Gmail, two true freaks at gmail.com, and uh, and I'll keep you guys posted. As uh, if you if you go to the forum, you'll be able to keep up with what's going on. Because as soon as I know whether I get my press pass or not, I'll I'll go and uh, and say that. And if I do, all I need to do is get on a bus and ride my ass down to New York City, and that should be pretty exciting. It'll be kind of weird without without Scott there. Because I have a feeling that you're probably not going to be showing up in New York City. <laughs> not anytime, anytime soon. Nope. Not me. I am poor. But that's about it. I don't think I've even... The last comic I bought was about... I'm about due to maybe go to the comic shop to ch- check out if uh, the new Walking Dead is there. Walking Dead what's, is what gets my ass into a, my local comic shop every month. If it wasn't for Walking Dead, I don't know what would... I don't know what would happen. <laughs> but uh yeah so that's about the only comic related news i have so you two have at it <laughs> okay uh labor day weekend is dragon con in atlanta and these two motherfuckers choose the two years that we're friends to not go but not the one year where we could have hung out where we really didn't know <laughs> each other no that's when they go but uh i wonder year, if we crossed paths that would have uh, probably did i'm sure we did um, because <laughs> Dragon Con, it's you and forty-five thousand of your closest friends over five hotels. Um, for those of you not familiar with Dragon Con, it's a four-day science fiction fantasy convention that basically takes over the hotel district of Atlanta. Uh, if you're into something, there is a panel about it. I guarantee you it's got Star Wars, it's got Star Trek, it's got anime, it's got manga, it's got a very limited and pretentious comics track. It's got, you know, just, you know, Harry Potter, Whedonverse, Wheel of Time, you know, novelists, hard science. Yeah, hard, hard science. Uh, You know, the X track where they talk about all the weird stuff. You know, if you want to meet Robert England, he's there. So... 
this year, unlike the last two years, Rachel and I stayed in town, which is how I recommend attending Dragon Con. Because one, you get to get sucked into the world that is Dragon Con pretty easier when you're not going home every day. But two, uh, it's just a pain in the ass for her and I to drive in and out of Atlanta, you know, for four days in a row. It's exhausting. And the easiest way to do it is to ride Marta, and Marta shuts down at 11 o'clock on the weekends. So you can't really do anything late at night. No, and Dragon Con sort of heats up around 11 o'clock at night. (laughs) So we stayed at the Hyatt uh, on the International Wing, which was nice because the elevators were a lot easier to deal with. But we managed to, through a series of finagling, to actually get some money for this. And, we, you know, we put away money and we managed to, uh, to get some money, too, through completely legal means, I assure you. So I actually had some spending money this year. So did Rachel. And holy crap, did I buy a bunch of, a bunch of stuff. Uh... One of the things I bought, which Scott is going to groan about, so I'll just uh, I'll just say it and then let him have his groaning time and then move on. I picked up the '60s Batman series for forty dollars, which <laughs> there you go, uh, which is actually kind of cool because the first year I went to Dragon Con, no, which was no, 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 there's nothing cool about the. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Um, the first year I went to Dragon Con the DVD set was $150. And it's been steadily going down, and this year it was $40. It's, it's over 10 DVDs. It's the entire series taken from the original Studio Masters. So this isn't some guy taping it off of, like, WPIX and, and you know, Channel 11 in New York City <laughs> and making a DVD. They have... The original, like, ABC intro where, you know, like, ABC, the ABC logo comes along. There are times where it says, place commercial here. Uh, and it also smells like, I don't know if, if you, have you guys ever bought bootleg DVDs at, at like, a convention? No. Not, I bought bootleg DVDs, yes. I there bought is a bootleg s- tapes back in the day, but I found that since everything went to DVD, that you can get it online, I, yeah, free. you can get them online. That, that was actually going to be one of my one of my things I was going to say is that you know I, I was really just kind of playing when I was giving you shit about that on Facebook, Mike, about picking these up. But part of the reason I was doing that was that honestly, I had the concern that you you, you may have spent more money than you needed to you might not have even had to spend money at all because i'm really curious if if these are not online somewhere you know what i mean they probably are but i just wanted the dvds i didn't want to have to go through the hassle of downloading them and then burning them onto a dvd well i can tell i can answer your question scott they are i've downloaded a couple episodes of it uh but they're compressed and you can Uh, find them uncompressed but then you have to download eight gigabytes per episode and you know how long that's going to take to get the whole run of batman so i mean he's better off i mean you could have said you could save the money and download them but it would be a big project and forty dollars yeah it was kind of a drop in the butt especially since last year it was 65 it's four bucks per dvd you know how how many uh, uh how many seasons did that show run anyway uh, two and a half, technically, they call it three, but it was a mid-season replacement in 1966. It had a total, I forget how many, it had like almost a hundred episodes mm-hmm. to it. 
That's uh, all, huh? So this also um, this also contains like the it has DVD extras of screen tests and stuff as well. So I'm gonna I'm looking forward to it. But the picture quality is freaking amazing. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can tell that this guy's burned a lot of copies of these. But they since they are from the studio masters. It's not like, like I said, some guy taping it off TV. It's pretty clear images. So I felt it was worth, worth the money. I, uh, I picked up a comic for Scott, which I have to mail to him, actually. Uh, probably wait, wait, wait. Now you're losing. What was this thing about the smell? There is a smell that of bootleg, bootleg DVDs? DVDs have. Like a burning smell. Oh, I thought you meant that the, the, the hellfire series has... It smells like ass, I'm pretty sure. Because I picked up a DVD it's the of the Devil's Anus. <laughs> I picked up years ago, I picked up a DVD of the pilot episode of The Greatest American Hero simply because when they started showing it on FX, they would cut out scenes. And when they released it on DVD, they didn't have the rights to all of the music they used in the show. So they would use like just canned music they had lying around that they did have the rights to, or new versions of the songs. And to me, with the Greatest American Hero, one of the great things about it was like the music you would hear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I bought a bootleg DVD of the pilot, and it smelled like, like you know, Teen you know, Spirit. When, like, like, yeah, exactly. You know, and I don't know what they're saying. Um, no, it just smelled like like it had a burning smell to it. Like the burning process of the DVD is done so much that it leaves an odor on the DVD itself. I could see so, that. Uh, it, it, very strange. But it, that was nice to find. I um, got that GI Combat number six, uh, 274 for Scott. Sweet. Which I got 50% off of the price they were asking, which I was very happy with. At that same vendor, uh, I got an issue of Action Comics and for 50% off, so like two, three bucks an issue. The Punisher magazine from the late 80s oh, cool. that, reprinted, that reprinted the miniseries and the first couple issues in black and white. Those were how I first read The Punisher. Uh, a, a friend of my sister's had them and let me read them, but they weren't mine, so I didn't get to keep them. So it was really cool getting my hands on those so cheap. What was the I issue got- of action that you got? Um, I have it right here. So let me look at it. I got Superman versus Wonder Woman, the big Dude, tabloid. I, I am so looking forward to us covering that. I really, really, really want to cover that because that oh. I I loved that book when I was a kid. I haven't read it in a long time, so I'm hoping it still holds up. But I imagine it does. Uh, Action Comics number four seventeen. And I'm just going to go through the stacks that I have placed around me right now. Sure. From one vendor, I got Batman number 347 to 356, plus a better copy of 357, which is the first appearance of Jason Todd, and Detective Comics number 513 to 517 and 519 to 523 for $2 a piece. So that was nice because those issues are getting really expensive. From the same guy on the last day, and this made me like kick myself, he sold me about 30 issues of Amazing Spider-Man, uh, 27 issues total, uh, about 20 or so issues of Amazing from like the early 200s, 
So it's like the Marv Wolfman run, a little bit of the Dennis O'Neill run, and like the early part of Roger Stern's run. Whole stack for 20 bucks just because he didn't want to carry Damn, dude. Yeah, that was like... So I averaged out paying like a maybe a dollar a piece for all of these books. So that was nice. Um, on the expensive side, I did pick up Superman number 232, uh, which is the last issue before Kryptonite Nevermore for now, more than paid for it. Did you pick that up on my recommendation? I picked it up on your recommendation and the fact that I needed it. I got you. Um, uh, from that same guy that I bought the Batman books from for two bucks a piece, I got two early issues of Superman Family. Uh, no, one early issue, 172 and 206 for two bucks a piece. I got six total issues of Kirby's run of Jimmy Olsen uh, for pretty cheap, too. Uh, because I'm trying to fill in my Superman Bronze Age run, and those can get kind of expensive and hard to find. So I got those pretty cheaply. This is the part that kind of annoyed me. I uh, I went to this one guy who was selling a bunch of comics for like three bucks a piece, right? So I picked up the first issue special with Doctor Fate, uh, the first issue special with Codename Assassin, and what I thought was John Burns Omac number one through four. But I didn't look close enough, and I actually ended up buying two issues, uh, two copies of number two. So I went back to the guy, and he didn't have number four. So I ended up trading it for another comic. And uh, I'm really going to have to find the fourth one, because I was leafing through the first issue, and this book looks awesome. I've never read it before. I know Scott loves it. Yeah. I was just looking at my list here to see if I had... I know that when it came out, I bought two or possibly three copies of every issue. I must have sold them at some point in the interim. I do no, I no longer have any doubles, unfortunately. But uh, I will be on the lookout for that because I know that I have seen issues of that series in 50-cent bins. So I will definitely keep an eye out for the uh, for the fourth issue for you. I got the Thor Visionaries, Walt Simonson, Volumes 1 through 4, all four volumes for $55. Wow. These are $30 books. The first three are 30 and the last one is 25 so score! Um, just to go back to OMAC for just a moment, have you ever seen the promo poster for that? No, I have not. It's awesome, dude. It's OMAC, but it's Burns OMAC, so he's wearing... Uh, uh, like a, he looks a lot like, uh, ah, shit. What was the name of that character from? I think it was from Wonder Woman, the one that we eventually he was revealed to be Heracles. But for champion, a, champion, he looks a lot like Champion. He's dressed like Champion. And he's holding a Nazi tank over his head. Sweet. It's a great, uh, great uh, promo poster. If you ever get a chance to uh, to see it or pick it up. But uh, the Thor Visionaries, Walt Simonson, I have almost the complete run that I've picked up for like not more than 50 cents an issue. But it's nice to have the trades when you can get them cheap. Plus, the fourth volume has the Balder the Brave miniseries, uh, which I have never read, but it looks pretty damn cool, actually. So I'm looking forward to that. Also in trade paperback form for 50% off, I got the Superman Chronicles Volume 9 to keep up with my collection of that. Uh, the Adventures of Nightwing and Flamebird 
the dynamic duo of Krypton trade paperback, which I paid a whopping, I think I paid 10 bucks for that one. Just because there was this place called Stanley Collectibles that was selling trades at 50% off the cover price. And for six bucks, I got the Robin Flying Solo trade paperback. That reprints the first like seven issues of the Solo Robin series. So it's Chuck Dixon writing and Tom Grumman artwork. You can't go wrong with that. And from that same place for 30 bucks, I picked up the first volume of Jack Kirby's Fourth World Omnibus. Because I'm, for some reason, I've gotten really into reading, like, into Jack Kirby's 70s stuff for DC. I have no idea why, but now I really, really want to read it. Well, I know why. Because I picked up the first three issues of The Demon. Jack Kirby's Demon series for like two bucks an issue recently, and I thought they were really cool. Chris, I think you would love these books. I remember those. I honestly do. I, I read them, and I'm like, Chris would love this, uh, just because of the artwork and the crazy shit going on in mm -hmm. the book. Mm -hmm. So the 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 omnibus is, was uh, I think that's even cheaper than what you can get at like in stock trades. The problem is is that I picked it up thinking, okay, I'm gonna go on eBay and get the rest of these really cheap. You can insert the trip lose sound effect from prices right here, Scott. Because that second volume <laughs> of that omnibus series. The cheapest one I found was $68. Yikes. Holy crap. On Amazon, the cheapest one they had was $120. Yikes. So I don't know what the fuck is going on with that. But uh, what else did I go through? Oh, no. For 6 bucks, I picked up the DC Marvel Crossover Classics Volume 2, which has the two Batman Punisher crossovers. The Superman Silver Surfer crossover, which has the Impossible Man and Mr. Mixius Pitalik fighting, which can't be. Because I didn't even know to, that happened. Because according to John Byrne, they're the same guy. So, I, I that's that, that story. Do you remember that from Superman number fifty, Scott? I do. That's a Burnism that they're the same guy. I thought that was uh... Byrne wrote and drew those those pages. Oh, okay. In, in Superman number 50, Mr. Mixius Pitalik is in another dimension fighting the Fantastic Four, and the gag is he's the impossible man in the Marvel Universe. But yeah, it, it was really funny watching the Mr. Mixius Pitalik as Doomsday and the impossible man as the Hulk fighting. <laughs> so that it's, it's a fun little story. But the main reason I bought it is... Well, one, it was $6. And two, this has Batman and Captain America, which I read and which is awesome. I love this story. How could it go wrong, really? By I John guess there's Burn. a million ways it could go wrong, but it sounds but like written, a natural. But it's written and drawn by John Byrne. Yeah. Oh, wow. There's, yeah, there's a Roger Stern idea on the very last page, which I'm not going to reveal. But what I will reveal is there is a total Rocketeer moment. Because the Joker finally finds out he's working for the Red Skull. And he, he's like, wait a second, you're a real Nazi? I may be a criminal, but I'm an American criminal, pal. You guys stay back. I got this. So, 
We're Nazis. Everybody hates Nazis. Everybody (laughs) hates Nazis. And why not? And I bought a shit ton of action figures because they were cheap. I basically picked up, except for one that I found on eBay really cheap. Um, Do you remember the Justice line of action figures, Scott, that DC Direct was doing based on that Alex Ross 12-issue series? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I do remember those. So basically, I picked up all of the Superman figures I needed, except for Brainiac, for really, really cheap. And uh, originally, it was like 125 bucks, but they had a, a rare variant of Superman with like angry red eyes that they sold me. I talked him down to 30, so that was nice. But sounds like I, if I was Superman. But I thought of you when I bought the Supergirl Scott because she is wearing her 70s outfit. Ooh. With the uh, with the shirt and the 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 symbol on the on like in really small on the you know the left breast and the yeah. shorts. I love that, that outfit. Yeah, it's a that's... good thing that Scott edit, edits this show because I would make good use of just that. I would take that clip out of context, and then I uh, and then when I saw Supergirl, I thought of you, Scott. Um. I went online and got the Brainiac figure because it was the only one they didn't have. Brainiac in that series was really creepy because Alex Ross's design for him was kind of like a mad scientist who wears like a white, almost dress lab coat thing, but his hands are constantly bloody. And he's got a monkey sidekick named Coco. I believe that's his name. That's yeah. something from the Silver Age. Coco, well, Coco, good gorilla. Coco comes with the Brainiac figure. Yeah. He's got a magnet on the bottom of him, and there's a magnet in Brainiac's shoulder, so you can put Coco on his shoulder and he won't fall off. It's really cool. I like it. <laughs> so they're all sitting there. I also picked up the Jet the New Gods Superman figure from that line, uh, which is based on Jack Kirby's designs where Superman looks like <laughs> like they cast some Neanderthal to play Superman. <laughs> But the thing was like three bucks, so I picked it up. I couldn't resist. I was like, like the, the Encino Man version of yeah. Superman. No, because that would be Brandon Brandon Fraser, and he was actually up for the role at one point. So, yeah, I guess so. I guess that works. Very good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you made the joke for me. But no, I managed to get a lot of really good deals. Uh, I did pay premium for some stuff, but it was more just the fun of finding it. Uh, because Dragon Con is not a big thing for if you're into comics. Right. Uh, the the track has now gone more towards like they'll have like an hour with Mike Grill or an hour with Bernie Wrightson, which is cool. And uh, frankly, I probably should have gone with them. But most of the panels are like academic based, where you have some scholar working on their PhD or who already has it coming in and discussing like feminism in comics and stuff and I think the academic study of comic books is valid I think that it should be done and I also think it sucks every bit of fun out of reading comics that you because I've read a bunch of these things well that's a, that's the thing you if like you, you know to me it's that just means it's a bad academic you know, because Jules Pfeiffer, I can't remember the name of the comic, but Jules Pfeiffer wrote a semi-academic book on all the superheroes, you know, in the 70s. 
and it was an entertaining as hell reading. It's like Stephen King's Dance Macabre. The, the, the comic book heroes that came out in 1965. Yes, I gave Scott a copy of that. That's, I mean, that's, that's a, that's a wild and woolly read, you know, it's full, it's, it's, it's a very interesting read, but at the same time, it's kind of an academic breaking down of, you know, the superhero ar- archetypes and all that stuff. There but, was a book that came out about 10 years ago called Batman Unmasked by this, uh, this, it was this guy's thesis, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he got the, he got the country of England to pay for this. Uh, but he basically studied Batman throughout his history, and he published his paper as a book and basically broke Batman down into four distinct eras and discussed him. And while there was academic speak throughout of it, it was a very engaging book. That's right. Then I picked up a book called How to Read Superhero Comics and Why. And it was the most pretentiously overwritten thing I have ever. I just. It was basically the breakdown is Warren Ellis writes really good comics. And the only vengeance I gained is when I looked on the back and they had the author credit. It said, This guy has a PhD in this, that, and the other, and is currently working as a night watchman here. Yes, exactly. So, so it's like, <laughs> ah, fucker. I uh, I got to get something signed by Peter David. I actually bought his novelization of Transformers: Dark of the Moon, because if uh, anybody can make a novelization interesting, it's Peter David. But the highlight of meeting somebody at Con this year was Carl Kiesel. <laughs> Sorry, Carl was... Kiesel, the the Carl Kiesel. <laughs> no, the reason why I was saying it so. It... On From Crisis to Crisis, the Superman podcast, Jeffrey and I struggled with the name. Scott and I have had an ongoing debate about the name. So I actually got to ask how you pronounce his name. Uh, He pronounces it Kiesel. He's a comic book writer. And he he started out mainly as an inker. uh, But he ended up being a very good writer. He wrote Superman for a very long time. He wrote a Hawk and Dove series. And over at Marvel, he's he was the inker on the Mark Wade, Mike Rowingo run of Fantastic Four, and uh, wrote a Captain America trade that I have to read. I got for fifty percent off, but it's basically it's about Patriot, who was like the second guy to be Captain America after Steve Rogers died, and it's kind of his story. So I'm looking forward to that. Meeting him was kind of funny. Because I had uh, like about four or five books that I wanted to get signed. I had my Death and Return of Superman omnibus. And I was going to ask him to be on From Crisis to Crisis eventually. So, And and I have to kind of get the nerve up to do that kind of stuff. Because I'm not good at just asking an artist or writer, Hey, you wanna, can I interview you? Because I just feel self-conscious for some reason. So I see him. I go over to a table to take all the comics that I had out of their bags. And when I walk back over, there's a guy who got there in between that time with no shit about a hundred books for Carl to sign. Big old stack of comics. He wasn't shy. No. No, he really wasn't. And he kind of pissed me off. So... He's sitting there talking to Carl. Carl's being a really nice guy because, as Scott can attest, Carl Kiesel's just a really nice guy. Oh, hell deal yeah. With him yeah. Personally. yeah. You know, he'll, he'll, he'll talk to you. He's interested in what you have to say. 
you know, he's engaging, you know, he just doesn't sign his books and throw them back at you. So he and this guy are talking and like five minutes goes by and I'm just standing there with my small pile. Finally, the guy looks over at me and says, hey, you can kind of sign his because, you know, you got like most of mine signed and I can wait. And I'm like, thanks, dick. Um, and he probably listens to the show. So <laughs> I've just pissed off a listener. But uh, had a really nice conversation with Carl uh, about the books that I had him sign. One of them I brought was a issue of Secret Origins, number 49, where he, in a rare instance, wrote, penciled, and inked the story. Because he rarely did pencils. But his pencil work was always really good. Uh, and he seemed to like that I brought that book. Which origin and, was that? Of uh, the Newsboy Legion. Oh, okay. And in addition to him agreeing to come on from Crisis to Crisis, because he seemed really interested in the show, I bought my first convention sketch from Carl. It is a beautiful headshot of the Guardian that he colored just because he had the markers with him. So it's an in-color head sketch uh, of the Guardian, and it looks beautiful. Oh, God, this thing is so neat. Scott will tell you from our tales of the JSA that every time the Guardian shows up, I have a fangasm. Uh-huh. <laughs> I just I just love the character. I love him to death, and I don't think Scott does at all. <laughs> it's not that I don't. I don't know. It, it, it's too long and involved to go into. Yeah, but I, yeah it's not that I, I, I don't <laughs> dig the character. It's just... I know why you don't. I, I think I understand. So no, now now you got me curious. Why do you think I don't like him? Because he was in the Superman books at a time when you thought the Superman books were focusing too much on the supporting heroes. That's part of it, but I mean, I, okay. it, it goes back beyond that to you know. I remember Guardian, you know, well before that. Is that Guardian is like the poor man's Captain America, and I felt like Guardian could have been great you know he could have really stepped up and and truly been dc's cap i think one of the the biggest issues with the guardian is that you know forgive me i I don't know what you think of the characters look yourself but i think he looks weak like his costume's missing something you know he's got a, a basic outline of a costume. You know he's got the the blue bodysuit. He's got I believe it's yellow trunks and like a yellow, almost like a like a helmet or something on the top of his head. But it looks a little bit funny because it's just like a cap, you know. And that's about it. He has no symbol on his chest or anything like that. And then his shield, I don't know what it should be. But being a great big police badge, to me, always looked really silly because it's not like he could throw it. it. You know what I mean? He, it wasn't like Cap Shield where Cap could throw it around and knock bad guys out and everything. I mean, this was pretty much a shield that you were just stuck, just kind of wearing it, you know? And I always felt like he just, like he was interesting, but he could have been great, you know, if he just had a little something more, you know, a, 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 a discernible symbol for one thing, you know, something that, that makes him easily identifiable that, oh, this is the Guardian, you know, rather than just, you know, here's this dude in a blue suit, who's this guy? And if he had a gimmick, you know, like, I don't know, like if he carried a gun or his shield did something. That's a my th- gimmick. <laughs> you know what i mean uh, you know it, it's just a matter of he he just needed just just that edge more 
to make him cool. Whereas as he was, he was just kind of, I don't know, he was just an also ran. You know what I mean? I, I, I see your point. I disagree with it, but I see it. So I just have always loved the character. Uh, one, one of the things, though, that, that he said that made me kind of laugh is I told him that, I, that uh, you know, at the time I had some issues with it, but I've come to kind of appreciate what he did with Superboy when he came back to the title. I don't know if you were reading it at that time, Scott, or if you ever read Superboy at all. When uh, when it was the clone, it, yeah, I, I read it spottily. I wanted to to get into the book, but every time I would dive in, I was always really impressed with the artwork because it was typically during the the Grummet phase, and I always liked Tom Grummet's stuff, no matter what he's working on. But somehow the the stories just never really grabbed me and held on to me, and a lot of it was because it was always wrapped up with that friggin cadmus shit i i'm sorry i hate cadmus i hate that yeah. whole damn storyline i yeah i think that was another thing with, with you know that helped me uh you know stay away from guardian was when they tied guardian into the whole cadmus thing and he became kind of just you know the security guard for cadmus it was like i've never liked that I, it was more of that kirby stuff that i just never cared for with you know, double X and the DNA aliens and all. I just never liked any of that shit, you know? It, it fascinates me that you and I both love that era so much and yet have that differing opinion right there. Because I really like that stuff. I, you know, it wouldn't be so bad if it was in small doses. But when, you know, I, I liked the fact that that was where Superboy came from. I thought that was kind of a clever idea that... You know, if you were going to create a, a Superman clone that was, you know, a boy, you know, that was a young man, that that was a way to to, to bring that about was to use Cadmus. But I would have liked if, you know, if all we got was the basic origin story as it existed. You know, Cadmus came up with this character. He awoke. He became self-aware. He escaped and he refused to go back. End of story. I would have liked it. But then when he actually went back to Cadmus, whatever the whole story, and I won't profess to understand all of it, because like I say, I, I only read that very spottily over the years, but it seemed like every time I'd pick up that damn book, it was double X and Cadmus, double X and Cadmus, every single issue, and it was like, damn it, I hate this shit, you know? So I didn't stick with it. So uh, I don't I don't well, know. I kind of asked, asked him about that, though. I go, you know, it had a real Kirby vibe, and he said... That when he came back to Superboy with issue 50 and did that whole commandy riff, mm-hmm. that he was basically doing Jack Kirby does Johnny Quest. Right. And basically, Superboy was Johnny Quest. Race Bannon, I get, uh, Race Bannon was the Guardian. And, and you can kind of go and so on. So I'm going to be interested in rereading those books when we get to them just to see if I like them a lot more today. Because at the time, I enjoyed them. But I was like, man, there's a lot of Kirby stuff in here. So I kind of agree with you, but it, it's just funny to, to see us differ. Because <laughs> if we're going to disagree about something, it's going to be on a galactic scale. I think I, I think this is a commonality of our you friendship. You guys are the Siskel and Ebert of the comic book world. <laughs> let, let me put it to you a different way, Mike, about the Guardian. Because I, I don't want to create the wrong, the, a false suck. impression that I that I hate the Guardian. Because I don't. I think my problem with the Guardian, when I really think about it, is that he, he's kind of like, say, like the Tarantula. You know, okay. where you look at Tarantula and you go, 
And I'm talking like the, the, the tarantula as we just recently saw him as you and I were covering um, All-Star Squadron before he changed his costume to be truly unique. You know, you look mm-hmm. at him in his original car- incarnation where he was very much looking like the Sandman and you just look at him and go, this guy's kind of cool, but what what's really all that unique about him? You know, what what's his gimmick that makes him somebody that I should care about? That's kind of my problem with the Guardian. As I look at him and go, eh, this guy's kind of cool, but I've seen everything he's doing before. What what's what's original about him and i don't find anything original about him i find him as you know a third rate cap knockoff whereas i think if you if you just changed one thing if you just gave him some different element that he could really be interesting i think comics i think are littered with characters like that maybe they come off as uh, as one note or sometimes they come off as even laughable but if you change one thing or add one little element to them, they had the potential to really be something great and original. They just never got that chance. And, and that's pretty much how I see Guardian, is somebody that I, I could have really gotten into. But as he stands right now, I just I see the Guardian, and like when I look at his costume as a great example, I see an incomplete character. And I think it's because he, he never did wear a symbol. You know, I, there's nothing on him. He's just in a blue union suit, and that's pretty much it. I don't know if I'm making any sense, but that's... that's no, you are. No, easy. no, I I can see where you're coming from. I really do. So, what else about Dragon Con? Uh, I walked around a lot. I didn't go to too many panels. Because I'm going to I'm gonna be honest with you guys and, and the people listening to this episode. I kind of used Dragon Con to get over the month of August, which was bad. So um, what you're saying is you're never usually honest with us, and now you're going to start being <laughs> honest. Yes, I've I see how it is, Bailey. Enti- I've been lying this entire time. I've, I've been I've been saying some things that are true and some things that are not true because I figure that's what you have to do to be on Two True Freaks. Oh, zing! Right? Oh, yes. um, I did a little people watching with the costumes. The new camera we we got just stopped working halfway through the con. So thankfully we had a backup. Uh, it was nice being away from the house. And I, I think I would have liked the end of Dragon Con more if one, I didn't get a stomach virus the very next day, uh, which was bad. And two, if my vacation didn't get cut short and I basically had to go to work the, the next day after Dragon Con was over. So after 30 days of hell, I, I run through the gauntlet that is Dragon Con, and then I have to go right back to work. So uh, I've been kind of a zombie lately, but yeah, I don't know what the hell I picked up at uh, at Con. But it was it was it, it wasn't it wasn't good. Uh, I was I was figuring Scott would start putting in the diarrhea sound effects at this point. Damn, you read my mind, dude. When I think of picking up something at Dragon Con. You know, I, I think of like crab lice or something. <laughs> so, but um, I know you're listening, other, hair metal hero. I know you appreciate that one. The other funny, <laughs> the other funny thing to me about Dragon Con was the, the 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 Monday. It ends on Monday, and we got checked out of the hotel, and we we hung around a little bit. I ran into our buddy Garrett Scott, uh, and sat there and talked to him where he was telling me about some of the books he's been reading recently, one of which is the uh, the Bionic Man comic, 
that came out recently based on the TV show. I plan to talk about that. Yeah, I, pl- I plan to give you his review of it, too. And we had to make a couple stops on the way home. We stopped at Walmart. Yeah, if you had the, had the squirts, I'd imagine that you had to make a few stops. <laughs> no, no, that didn't, that didn't hit until the morning after, thankfully. But we, we stopped at Walmart, and the tornado siren went off in Fayette County. Uh, so yeah. we all had to march to the middle of the store and just sit there for about five minutes. I hope I have a copy of uh, It's Got to Be the Morning After. I'm going to have to look and see if I've got it. You know, it's so funny. I'm thinking the same thing. That's that's the music I heard, Joe. <laughs> it's got to be a morning after. What's the movie that that's from? <laughs> Is that from uh, that's from Towering Inferno, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know. I think I, it I've is. I've never seen Towering Inferno. I remember the song. You've never know. seen the Towering Inferno? No. Holy no, I never dude! Oh I've never my seen god! The, I've never seen the Poseidon Adventure. I never oh. was a big disaster movie. I never saw Earthquake. Any of those disaster movies? Uh, Earthquake is easily skipped, dude. Towering Inferno and uh, and Poseidon. If nothing else, they're totally worth it for the awesome John Williams scores for those movies. Ah, but uh, I thought you were gonna say the plethora of character actors like Ernest Borgnine and well, and, uh, not really. I mean, t- Poseidon for me is kind, of a, is kind of a guilty pleasure. I mean, it does have some good mo- you know, moments in it and everything, but over the years, watching that movie, especially with uh, with it starting out with uh, Leslie Nielsen as the, as the captain, it's going to feel very cliched and almost comedic. Whereas Towering Inferno holds up as a really great movie, and one of the reasons it holds up so well is the two main guys in it are um, Paul Newman and uh, uh, Steve McQueen. Oh, okay. And, I mean, just delivering top-notch performances in that movie. Steve McQueen plays the fire chief in that movie, and he's just badass. I mean, Steve McQueen's, I mean, he was a hell of an actor. And, you know, you couple that with all these other actors, you know, some of them were A-list, a lot of them were B and C-list actors, you know, but all of them recognizable as just the people that, you know, are, are in the movie just to fall out of windows. And then couple it with, uh, I mean, a, one of the best pre-Star Wars soundtracks that Williams ever did. It, it's a great, you really need to watch that movie. I think you would thoroughly enjoy it because I don't, I don't think it's what you might think it is. Really good. It doesn't sound like it. Yeah, so I guess I do. Poseidon Adventure is worth a look just as kind of a, I don't know. Cheesy fun. Yeah, kind of a cheesy curiosity. But, I mean, it has some moments in it. But I I get the feeling from that movie it was somebody wanting to make a Titanic movie without making another Titanic movie. Right, right. Yes. But, uh, yeah, Towering Inferno, just fantastic movie. There's I, I, there's not even really a movie that I can think of off the top of my head to compare it to. You know what I mean? It, it's just one of those ones you just got to see it to, to appreciate it. I'm glad that uh, Talk of Diarrhea led us to uh, the Towering Inferno. <laughs> well, that's all I got. <laughs> so, what do you got, Scott? Oh, my gosh. Well... This, this was actually a huge comics month for me. Right off the bat, I just wanted to mention, last time around I had talked about, uh, I think it was last time around anyway, I talked about the new comic shop that I've been going to, my new LCS, LCS rather, which is uh, Comic Central. 
in uh, Sanford, Florida. And I could not remember the fella that nine times out of ten is the guy that uh, that is there at the store and uh, and always rings me out. It's really always re- really really nice guy. Um, has been pulling titles for me and stuff, and you know just keeping me up to speed on comics. And I really don't keep up anymore with like you know previews or what's out and what's coming out, all that crap. I just don't anymore. And I typically get that sort of thing from from this film. I could not, for the life of me, think of his name, and I felt terrible about that. Anyway, his name is Tyson. Really, really super nice guy, and I wanted to give him a shout-out this episode. So, hi, Tyson. And uh, I was talking to somebody online the other day, and for the life of me now, I can't remember who it was. got me thinking about old comic shops from, you know, back in the day. And I started looking up some of the ones that I used to go to, and I remember... uh, one of the, the big ones for me, and I think Chris will remember this place, was uh, Twilight Book and Game. Oh, yeah. Syracuse. And I just got cu- kind of curious they, about it. They were the publishers of, what was it, Slime Time? Slime Time, yeah. Yeah. That was one of the, one of the first... That's like a, a Fanz- groundbreaking publication, not mm-hmm. just as a fanzine. But it sort of was on the trailing. They the, the begin- it or, or were they just the place where you could get it from? No, they published it. Did they pu- okay. And they, they, that was in the early days before the internet and blogs when you had zines, mm-hmm. which were sort of the equivalent of blogs in the old days, but mm-hmm. you had to order it. And Slime Time was one of the first scary movies, comics, and just yep. sort of that sort of stuff zines that got into that whole circuit which was really dominated by punk rock but they sort of had that that funny monster movie look about them you know the illustrations of goofy looking monsters in it and stuff and it was widely you know i mean whenever i see people who used to collect zines or trade zines there's invariably uh, um issues of slime time in there and i'm yeah it's I, it's always I'm always proud to go like yes this is from this comic shop in Syracuse that you know I used to go to once in a while you know that that this came from they're like really slight because it's it's legendary in zine circuits somewhere I have a stack of those and if if I can ever find them and find the they're time worth I'll scan inch. them really <laughs> oh, yeah <laughs> <Indeed>. <laughs> Yeah, you might want to do a little research on that stuff because talk about micro publishing. You know what I'm saying? There's right. It was widely popular, and you know where do you go to get issues of Slime Time now? You know you don't. Right. They they were mimeographed basically. You know they were probably done on their copying machine there. Oh yeah, yeah. They were clearly run off of a copier of some of some sort. Yeah, I'll have to check into that because, yeah, I know I do have a, a stack of those somewhere or other that I've kept all these years just because it was. It was a, a really good little fanzine. Well, anyway, I wound up on this website that was uh, it was one of those, like, lost buildings type of type of deals, you know, lost businesses or, you know, changing face in New York or something to that effect. And uh, found out that, sadly, Twilight and Book and Game's been gone, I guess, for quite a number of years. That, uh, yeah, I think that whole section was pretty much... I remember go, when we went to that auction with my dad, we stopped yep. at Twilight. Yeah. Well, also, like, I, the Carousel Mall now, I guess, is like a total, like, you know, ghost town and everything, which is hard to believe. That place was, was so... I was in there just a couple years ago. Yeah. 
and it was it was it was kind of a ghost town but it wasn't a dead mall we've got a couple dead malls here because mm-hmm. there were people in it and it was kept up it was ke- it was still you know that state of the art look that it that it's always had it it didn't look like they 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 definitely have not let it go to seed it's all still looks new and is you know being kept clean and stuff but definitely malls are not at their former malls are not the wave of the future anymore you know i think the internet pretty much put an end to malls really they put an end to a lot of a, a lot of comic shops too yeah and uh I, but i i continued searching around and I was very, very pleased to find out that when I was in the service, the primary LCS that I would go to was a little place in Utica, New York. And they eventually opened a second location right in Rome, New York, which is where I was stationed. I was stationed at Griffiths Air Force Base, and Griffiths Air Force Base was like, you know, right in Rome. Is Rome, basically, yeah. is built around it, sort and of. I- I always liked the second location that they opened up just because it was closer and it was more convenient. But again, it was it was kind of like the, you know, it was the child store and the and the main parent store was in Utica and it was called Ravenswood. I, mm, I remember that place. They're still around today. You can find them uh, on the net. They're at Ravenswood Comics, all one word, Ra- Ravenswood Comics at uh, verizon.net. Actually, that that must be their. They're one of those comic shops. Look at it, but they are still they are still around. They have a a website and everything. I'm sorry, what'd you say? I don't know if they still do it, but they're one of those comic shops that they used to have a stamp that said Raven Ravenswood Comics, and I have tons of comics that I haven't gotten in Utica or Rome, but have just made their way through you know Northern New York that have the Ravenwood comic stamp on the inside cover of it. Yeah, they did used to do that. A lot of the freebies that they would give away and a lot of comics that you would buy that were bagged and bored, the the board would be, uh, be stamped. Yes. Ravens would stamp. I've got a lot of comics like that from all over the world that have like a store stamp on the board that's in the comic. Those are kind of... I used to not like, like that. ...into those just to see, you know, if the, if the shop's still around or what. I used to not like that, but now I love it. I love yeah. having, so, you know, I was like, oh, they're marring up the comic. But now it's like, nah, it's kind of neat. It, it gives it a little history, you know. It, well, I don't like it, it actually on the track comics themselves, from. you know. I, I, I don't mind it, like, on the board or whatever. I, if it's on the comics themselves, it, that kind of bugs me. Just If it was on the cover, it would really bother me. But, like, on, like, an inside cover on an ad or on a piece of blank space or something like that, it doesn't bother me. It reminds me of my old antique books that have people's names in them and inscriptions yeah. in them. It makes it all the cooler. It also depends on how much you paid for it. If it's on all like the 30 cent books, I really don't care. <laughs> exactly. That's usually where it is, too. I basically wanted to talk about this past month of comics for me in, in two phases. One was the uh, the brand newest of the new stuff that I got, you know, as far as uh, new comics coming out on the stands. And then uh, this has been a huge month for me as far as back issues. You know, I'm really not getting very many titles right now. And uh, I posted this on Facebook the other day, but I was really serious about it. You know, somebody had told me, say, 10, 20 years ago, that one day I I would only be buying just a handful of comics and none of them would be a DC or a a Marvel comic. I had a told them they were out of their minds that there's no way that that would ever happen 
And here I find myself today, and I'm not buying any DCs or Marvel. Everything I'm buying is an indie. I just I don't know how that happened. But I'll tell you what, I am enjoying it. It took 25 hell. years, but yeah. finally they come around to, <laughs> to <Yeah>. me. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. I'm just going to go run through these real quick. I bought uh, issue number one of The Bionic Man from Dynamite Comics. Not exactly what I thought it was going to be. I could swear that I read in solicits that this was picking right up from the television show. It's not. It's a reimagining, and it's written by Kevin Smith, which is a recipe for me hating it. I didn't. I dug it big time. It was really... Kevin Smith wrote it. Yeah. Yeah, it's based on the script that he wrote years ago for the film Mm -hmm. that never got made. I I may have to get this. I'm telling you, dude, I think you would really, really enjoy it. It's uh, Issue 1 starts out with this... You know, obviously it's a cyborg guy. He's like a cyborg. I don't know if he's supposed to be a ninja or if he just employs this, you know, he, he employs like a ninja sword. But he breaks into this like prosthetics bionics lab thing, kills everybody there, tears up a bunch of the equipment. That's that's like the, the preamble to how the issue opens. The rest of the issue is very much um, an adaptation slash updating of the very beginning of the very first episode of the six million dollar man which was these military types are waiting around and getting very pissed off and very impatient waiting for colonel steve austin to show up to test fly their new in this it's a fighter plane in the original movie i think it was a a rocket yeah it was like a rocket in this it's it's a it's a fighter craft or you know it's a new form of like stealth fighter type of thing but it's still very much the same story, still very much the same sort of character is that Steve, Oct- Steve Austin's just, he's, a, he's really cocky, you know, very uh, sure of himself. And uh, there's a nice romantic scene between him and his fiance, who I was very pleased to find out uh, in this is named Jamie. I'm assuming this is Jamie Summers. If it is, I, I really like that, by the way. But if it is, I pray to God she doesn't become the bionic woman in this. I think that would just be an edge of silliness that the book doesn't need. But uh, it leads right up to where you know she kisses him, you know, goodbye, wishes him luck, refuses to stick around to to watch what's going to happen. This is his last mission. He's giving it all up to be with her. And of course, you know, this being the six million dollar man, this last mission goes horribly, horribly wrong. And at the very end of the issue, and this was one of the things that really won me over with this, is that it was it's it's being done very lovingly as a total homage to the original show without being slavish to it at all. I mean, it's very much a modernizing, a very much an updating. But I love that it ends with Austin screaming into his uh, mic, I can't hold it, she's breaking up, she's breaking up, which is how every episode of The Six Million Dollar Man started with that scene of him saying, that's how issue one ends. I, you know, I loved it. I thought it was really, really good. I can't wait to read more of it. I enjoyed the hell out of it. Was speaking briefly with uh, Andy uh, Leyland, rather, Andy Leyland the other day. Now all I hear is, Leyland! (laughs) Hey Kids Comics, and he mentioned the one criticism that I had as well, which was, I miss him being an astronaut. 
I, I totally agree with that. However, I totally understand why they didn't go that route. Because him being an astronaut and being a moonwalker on the original show, even though it was now several years past the point where we were really continuing to send people to the moon, you can get away with that in the late 70s without too many people saying much about it. Today, over 30 years, almost 40 years at this point, since we've discontinued sending people to the moon, it, it would seem a, a horrible, uh, what's the word, anachronism. So I can see why they didn't do that. But yeah, I will miss that aspect of Steve Austin. But again, I enjoyed it. I, I can't wait for more of it. It was really, really good. Uh, moving on, Planet of the Apes number five. This started a whole new storyline. Um, this issue is just a buck. If you ever want to uh, jump on and try it out, see what you think of it, I would say try this issue. I, I liked it. I liked it a lot. But I've been I've been enjoying the whole series so far. Lastly, for this time around anyway, I picked up. All I've got here to talk about is the first three, but I actually picked up the first four issues of the Rocketeer Adventures. Wasn't sure what I was going to think of it because I didn't realize until I'd actually already picked up the first three that these are $3.99 a piece, which to me, I kind of swore off comics that were that much. You know, it's one of the big reasons I'm not following anything with Marvel or DC because they hit that $3.99 mark and I was just like, eh, that's it, I'm out. However, if I'm going to spend $3.99 on a comic, it's going to be Rocketeer Adventures, baby, because this book is freaking excellent. You know, a long time ago I had said that I was totally sick and tired of Alex Ross. The covers on these are awesome. And I didn't even realize it until I got to the third issue and saw uh, Betty Page that it was Alex Ross. I didn't even realize it because... Well, he's a natural for the oh, Rocketeer. Yeah. It's beautiful, beautiful stuff. But, you know, his his Betty Page on the issue of three is the is the only one so far where I looked at it and go, eh, I don't care for that that much, only because I never really liked Alex Ross's women. But, I mean, the cover to number one is just stunning. Number two is just, you know, classic Rocketeer that could be right out of, like, a, a promo for the movie or something like that. I have really enjoyed this. The talent that they're getting to work on this book is just fantastic. It's an anthology title, and they're all basically short stories. And they've had guys like uh, Darwin Cook, Bruce Tim. I mean, just really top-notch talent working on this. And everybody that's working on it, you can you can tell very much that they're either a fan of the Rocketeer or they were a fan or a friend of Dave Stevens. Dave Everything's Stevens. done very lovingly as a total homage to either Stevens or the Rocketeer or both. And uh, I'm enjoying it a whole lot. It's done very much in like uh, in that adventure style like, like Dark Horse was doing with, like say, Star Wars Adventures or Clone Wars Adventures or Indiana Jones Adventures. It's that cartoony. It's not that cartoony, but it's that style of story, if you know what I mean, where it's all short stories in an anthology format. And uh, just great stuff. I really, really am digging that a lot. But this is very much the comic book Rocketeer. It, it's If you're going into it expecting the movie Rocketeer, you know, the, the film one, the, the Disney version, it is different than that. And, you know, if that's your only uh, touchstone with that character is the Disney movie then some elements of, of these stories um, 
I won't say will put you off or even shock you or anything, but you might be surprised by the difference because you know his girlfriend being the the most marked change between the comics and the and the movie that came out because in the movie, you know she was played by Jennifer Connelly and she was very much this like sweet innocent girl, whereas in the comics she's Betty Page, you know, as a woman that makes her her living taking her clothes off, so. A very big uh, difference between those two characters. But I would highly, highly, highly recommend Rocketeer Adventures if you just want some good, fun comics to read. You know, it's just it's just light, fun reading for, for comics. I enjoyed the hell out of it, and I'm looking forward to, uh, to more issues of it. Have either of you guys checked that out? No, I haven't seen it yet. I'm heading to... Yet. I'm going to my LCS tomorrow, so... I would say, at the very least, you know, pick it up and uh, and thumb through it if you get the chance. I, I'd be very curious to see what you guys thought of it. I'm definitely going. I'm going with to pick up the six million dollar man because that sounds awesome. And I'm I, I usually I like almost everything Kevin Smith does except in comics. But usually, what I don't like when he does in comics is when he does an established super. I don't like how he does superheroes. So, but the six million dollar man, I could totally see. Let's see it working. The dialogue. It, I mean, you can definitely tell that that yeah. he's bringing his his a game to the dialogue because uh, that was one of the things that really won me over in this. Is a lot of the dialogue feels very real and very natural, and uh, and I like that. It didn't feel cliched or comic booky or anything. Right. It just felt like you know this is the way this character would speak if he if he existed if he were real and I, I like that i like very realistic dialogue in stories like that and uh right. and i really enjoyed it because he, he took it you know the the team on this really took it seriously because i think there's a tendency for people to look back at something like the six million dollar man and roll their eyes and go oh god that was a silly concept or that was a stupid show you know with buying it yeah, let's recast it with will ferrell yeah yeah exactly and there's a tendency to maybe want to make fun or roll your eyes or whatever if you're not terribly familiar with the with the source material. Yeah. The original movie of the he's taking the premise premise seriously. It was oh yeah, it was total serious science fiction that worked. I mean, I watched it again not long ago and was just blown away by wow, this is you know a, a serious approach to this science fiction concept, yep. and it wasn't goofy or campy at all. Not at all, and I really enjoyed it. And I liked that same take with this: is that they're, you know, they're setting this up that they're going to take this guy very seriously. And I'm really hoping that they're going to run more with the classic, you know, Steve Austin becomes basically a superpowered secret agent angle more than you know he becomes a, a comic book superhero. Because well, I think well, I heard- that's where the com- the original comics that came out back when the six million dollar man was on tv you know the they there was a charlton series and then there was even right. a magazine. It yeah it did it was very much okay he's a superhero and no steve austin really was not a superhero he was a secret agent he was basically james bond but with super abilities souped up yeah, yeah. and and that's the i think that's still the best approach even modern day i think that would be a hell of a good way to approach that series you know super powered secret agent well, I know Kevin Smith has been saying lately that he's only going to do one more movie after Red State, and then he's done doing movies, because he can say everything he says in a combination of 
podcasts and then he was like and then i've got all these scripts that i wrote that never got made into movies i can just do them as comic books mm-hmm. and uh so maybe kevin smith if if he's you know i don't ever it's just like when you hear a band saying they're on their fi- farewell tour you know i never believe when people announce the end of their career especially when they're not like 75 years old right you know when when they're not you know they're not physically unable to do it but if i mean he could become he, he, he could he could put some life into comics he could you know definitely be an interesting force potentially in comics so that would be really interesting especially if he was going to do stuff like you know if he did a good amount of his kevin smith jay and silent bobby stuff but he did some stuff that he took seriously too like the six million dollar man which i realize that sentence sounds kind of stupid right (laughs) as i say it but you know it could be really interesting i mean a lot of people are talking about you know comics potentially dying out but it's that's not going to happen you know that 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 a good part of them could die out or they could change, but you know, you'd probably just see, you know, possibly different players coming in. Right. And, you know, maybe, maybe Kevin Smith, that would be really interesting. Somebody transitioning from a list movies to comic books. He would be the kind of guy to do it. Cause he seems to just sort of do whatever he wants. Anyway, I'd be very interested. I'm definitely going to go, go and buy it tomorrow. <laughs> Well, I have been saying for a while that it'd be kind of been kind of a dry spell with me as far as back issues go. But that back that a uh, long dry spell suddenly ended in this last month. I have got me a ton of great back issues lately, almost all of them for dirt cheap, and I just kind of wanted to run through them a little bit. Top of the stack here for me is uh, something I really do plan on going into on another show. More than likely, it'll be back to the bins. I'm not sure yet. But I, I really want to go into more of an in-depth uh, discussion of this at some point. But it's the one that uh, Michael brought up earlier, Superman 232. Picked this up on a total whim. I was uh, up at uh, Comic Central, my new uh, LCS, and just kind of digging through the back issue bins. Ran across this for three bucks and could not resist picking up. It has an awesome, awesome cover on it of Superman actually holding up the world of Krypton. And it's got like three little picture vignettes in it. One of them is, uh, says the last days of Krypton and it shows baby Kal-El being blasted away from the planet. Um, another one says the legend of the winged one, which is this weird thing. It looks like a dude like on a surfboard that's flying being chased by this big white dragon. But the one that really caught my interest was uh, up in the right-hand corner. It says, Superman's Return to Krypton. And it shows Superman sitting in, like, the driver's seat of this little, like, rocket car. And then his parents are in the back seat. And then there's this girl sitting next to him. And I got to thinking, I wonder if this is that story. And I could just kind of only remember the vaguest of details. But I remembered a story about Superman going back in time to before Krypton blew up and falling in love with Lila LaRal. And I thought, I wonder if that's that story. So I didn't even open it or anything. I just thought, "Ah, I can risk three bucks. So I picked it up. Damned if that's not the story that's in this book. I love that story. One of my favorite, favorite Superman stories of all time. And uh, the art in it is fantastic. It's by Wayne Boring. So like I say, I'm definitely going to be covering this uh, at some time in the near future. So uh, be on the lookout for that. But just a great, great issue. And I was really glad I picked it up. 
got me a couple issues of Batman Family that just kind of fell in my lap for cheap, uh, numbers 8 and 10, so I'll be reading those eventually. Got an issue of uh, Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes. I'm still trying to complete my Mike Grell era run on these, and uh, I'm getting much closer all the time. Pick this up. I'm pretty sure it was like for 50 cents. Uh, art by Mike Grell, story by Jim Shooter. So I'm looking forward to that. And I got me a ton of Superman family. You know, I, again, I had gone through a very long dry spell. I'm trying to complete a collection of Superman family. Could not seem to find these cheap at all. They go for, for pretty good yes, uh, prices on eBay. All of a sudden, this whole bunch of them fell in my lap. I got uh, 166, which I actually already had, and I didn't realize it at the time. So I'll be sending you a copy of that one, Mike. I have doubles on 166. Woo-hoo! Got 166, 173, which actually has um, Jimmy Olsen as uh, Flamebird in it. So I'm looking forward to reading that one. Um, 175, 179, 180. 198, 99, and 200, which is one I've always wanted to read because they used to advertise this in comics all the time. It was the one where Superman is drawing back the curtain of time for a peek into a possible future as Lois and Clark celebrate their wedding anniversary. And it was that one, it's a great cover where it says, Can you identify everyone at the party? And there's all these people standing around. Some of them are readily recognizable like Supergirl and some, and then there's other characters you're like hmm that that looks like that's probably the daughter of Lois and Clark or something like that so really looking forward to that just because I've always wanted to read that story and then again at my uh, at my new LCS I noticed I never realized it before but they actually had a box there that was three for a dollar comics and I was like hell yeah I'm into that so I rated this box, and not all of these came out of this box, but most of these did. I kind of just lumped everything together that I have gotten here recently. But everything here I don't think I paid more than uh, 50 cents for, so I'm just going to run through real quick some of the awesome stuff that I got because I was very excited about these. Got Superman 561, which got a really cool cover on it with uh, Superman being attacked by the, the old original Toy Man, kind of the, the fat chubby looking he actually looks a lot like meatloaf now that i look at him it's kind of nice but it's cool because it's it's got a backup story in it that uh, says extra artist wayne boring returns with the past and future superman so i'm looking forward to, to reading that because i really dig uh wayne boring superman quite a lot i picked this one up literally on a recommendation a personal recommendation made to me by the writer which was a mark wade i picked up captain america man out of time number one i'm really looking forward to that because he uh was very proud of that book when we were talking captain america at megacon so uh looking forward to reading that (laughs) this one's a guilty pleasure from the pages of the tick i got a chainsaw vigilante number three i always love this guy and i didn't even realize there was a (laughs) really so yeah he's great (laughs) got uh some nice dirt cheap issues of dc comics presents it's another one of those series i'm trying to complete a run of and uh, i got let's see number 32 superman and wonder woman superman and plastic man and number 39 and uh superman and a character i really don't like Arion, Lord of Atlantis, that's uh, number 75. Arion has the distinction of, I think, the only story I've ever read with him that I liked was uh, his guest appearances in Crisis on Infinite Earths. 
Andy sounds like a Nazi, basically. <laughs> yeah, he does. <laughs> not, not that kind of Aryan. And I was very happy to find, for a mere 33 cents, I got El Diablo number one. Now, this was the uh, the one from 1989, the new format one. Ooh, with art good book. Mike Parabek. And I picked it up strictly because it was Mike Parabek. I have no great love for uh, for El Diablo, but I'm looking forward to it just because I loves me some Mike Parabek. It, it's a good series. I liked it. I liked what I read of it. Picked up uh, Exiles number eighty three because it's another series I'm trying to co- uh, collect all the issues of. On Mike's recommendation, so if it sucks, I'm going to blame him. I picked up Impact Comics The Fly issues 4 and 5, another series I'm trying to collect all the issues of. And again, because it has stunning art by uh, Mike Parabek. And god damn do I miss Mike Parabek, man. Really, really miss him. He was, he he just, he he left us too soon. Just a a hell of an artist. Um, All right, don't laugh, but I picked up issues 4 and 6 and 9 of Forceworks. <laughs> I don't even know why I would laugh at that. I know nothing about that, so don't I'm worry about me laughing, man. Actually, I don't know. I can't tell you honestly why I bought issues four and nine. Other than issue four, I swear to God that the, the guy on the cover, the villain on the cover of this, his name is Ember, looks like they totally ripped off the Anti-Monitor from Crisis on Infinite Earths. I actually bought issue six because it's part of the uh, crossover called Hands of the Mandarin, which crossed over with Iron Man and War Machine, I think. So I'm trying to collect all the issues of that. Well, let's see what else we got. We got Hercules and the Heart of Chaos, only because I'm still kind of on a Hercules kick after our Hercules coverage. What was that, like two or three episodes ago now? Yeah. I got uh, the first two issues of that. I got a shitload of JSA Classified, which, again, is another series I'm trying to collect uh, all the issues of. And every single issue of this series, I can tell you, I have got on the extreme cheap. So I've got almost the whole series now. This is issues 22, 23, 24, 26, 27, 29, 30, and 31. I have no idea what to expect on the inside, but hell, they're worth it for the covers alone. I mean, beautiful covers here with uh, the new, uh, the newer version of Doctor Midnight, Wildcat, Mister Terrific, who I really, really like a lot. And then there was even an issue uh, with Hawkman by Walt Simonson, so I'm looking forward to that. That picks up right after like Infinite Crisis. So if you're reading Hawkman around that time, that's where that story fits in. Oh, cool. Something else I was really, really glad to get a couple more issues of. And as it turns out, I uh, uh, just looked last night, and I think I'm only four issues away from a complete series of this now, is Dynamite Comics' The Lone Ranger, which is, god damn, is that a good book. I just, I, I had trouble keeping up with it because when I was in Georgia, I didn't have a regular LCS when I lived there. So, my, you know, I picked up my comics just very irregularly and very spottily. And so I had like the first like 10 or 12 issues of Lone Ranger. And then after that, I had a, a, a really hard time finding the rest of them. And ever since then, whatever issues I've gotten since I've picked up in the, in the cheap bins, you know? So this is three more issues. I got 18, 20, and 21. I'm really looking forward to catching up and, and seeing the rest of that story because I 
really dug that series. It was really solid because it was, uh, you know, the first, I want to say six or eight issues felt to me like an adaptation of The Legend of the Lone Ranger, which is one of my favorite and most underrated movies ever. So I really dug that series. Got three more issues of the uh, the Manhunter series from this was two thousand something or other when that came out, like two thousand four, I want to say. It's that one. It's that series, Mike, with uh, with the woman that gets revealed eventually to be uh, Iron Monroe's granddaughter. Oh yeah, Kate Spencer. Yeah, and I still have not finished reading that, so I'm I'm really looking forward to reading the rest of that series. There's going to be some of that's going to annoy the piss out of you. I'm just warning you oh. right away. <laughs> okay, I look forward to that. I guess. <laughs> um, still collecting Marvel Age, and I got a ton of those thanks to a friend of ours that we're going to be discussing on uh, Tales of the JSA not not long from now. So, picked up an issue of Marvel Age. I think that was like a quarter, if I remember right. And again, guilty pleasure from the pages of the Tick, Paul the Samurai, issues two and three. Again, I, all this stuff related to the tick, I loved all that stuff. Like Man-Eating Cow. Man-Eating Cow is a great Man-Eating Cow is great. great. Yeah. Um, it reminds me of the vampire cow from Howard the Duck. Yes. Yeah, very much so. Whenever people ask me for like recommendations on like great comics, you know, like like funny comics, you know, what's something that really made you laugh or whatever. I still think to this day one of the funniest comics I ever read was the first issue of Man-Eating Cow because that was the one that was called, uh, the title of it was, This this is not not a boat accident. It wasn't any propeller. It wasn't any coral reef. And it wasn't Jack the Ripper. It's a man-eating cow instead of a shark. It's, It's so ridiculous that it's hilarious. I always got a kick out of that, but that was a really, really good series. Um, picked up an issue of Quasar, and I can't really tell you why, other than the the cover is awesome, and it's an Axe of Vengeance crossover with Quasar fighting uh, the Absorbing Man. Plus, uh, you know what? I don't even think I even thumbed through this, and now as I open the first page, I see that the artist is Paul Ryan. Yep. There's a guest appearance in here by the Stingray, who I always thought had one of the best costumes in Marvel Comics. So actually, you know what? I picked this up totally on a whim, and I'm really glad now that I did because it actually looks pretty awesome. Uh, let's see. I got issue number one of the Saga of the Human Torch by Roy Thomas. And I love Roy Thomas's historical stuff, and I've been trying to pick this up for a long time, so... Now I'll have to hunt that much harder for the other three issues, but I'm looking forward to reading that. It looks really cool. Uh, Vigilante number one. Now this is the old Vigilante from uh, Marv Wolfman back in what was this eighty some yeah eighty three. Looking forward to that. that. Looks cool. And lastly, War Machine number ten. And again, guilty pleasure. It was part of the uh, Hands of the Mandarin crossover, so pretty much had to get that. And you know, we had uh, talked a while ago about Salvation Army and Goodwill and stuff like that. And I know that Mike and I are, are planning to uh, eventually get around to doing our, uh, you know, how to collect comics special that we're going to do. And that's one of the things that I definitely plan to bring up in that show is, you know, going to your, you know, your garage sales and flea markets. Now, now when you guys do that show, mm-hmm. can I have 
just I can do it all canned, but can intersperse between it. Can we have Chris Honeywell's garage sale tips? Sure. And I'll just come in with a 30 second tip that you guys can throw in with some. <laughs> Don't try to fuck the owner. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, very much so. But, you know, okay. one of the things that's I, I think is important, and I'm really going to try to remember to, to discuss this when we finally do that episode, is, you know, availing yourself of places like that. You know, like the Salvation Army and, and uh, Goodwill and things like that. But you got to be patient. Because, you know, I, I posted up both of these scores the other day on, on Facebook, you know, just kind of bragging about them. And had people, you know, saying things like, oh, you know, you always have, you know, such good luck. And wow, you know, how do you find these things? You know, and I posted something up to the effect of, you know, for every successful trip, you know, and every score at some place like that, you know, it was preceded by 20 trips that were completely fruitless, you know? Right, right. I was going to put a post up, but I was too tired last night saying basically... You have to keep going there. The more you right. go there, the, it just increases your eye. It's a crapshoot. So yep. if you haunt a place, you're going to find something eventually. And and it's always just enough to keep you going. But you'll, you know, every once in a while, you, you know, your persistence will pay off. And, and if you go there at random times, maybe you'll get there before Scott does. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, if. If Scott's going twenty times, you got to go twenty times too, unless unless you want your odds to be even lower. But yeah, you can't just expect to pop in and find action number one. Yeah, but you know, every once in a while, you, you find something great, and I, and I yeah. got lucky this time. I found a couple things that uh, that tickled me greatly. For I think this was fifty cents, or maybe even less. Maybe it was only like five or twenty-five. Cents. I forget. But it's a kid's book. You know, it's one of these, like, uh, it's a little golden book. Uh-huh. But it's uh, it's The Adventures of Superman. This is from 1982. I've never seen this before. I had no idea it existed. But it is, what I thought it was was just, like, a Superman story. But this is actually the origin story of Superman retold for, like, the zillionth time with, like, a little adventure at the end of it where Superman fights these, like, helicopter guy you know these little guys that are wearing like backpacks with helicopters on uh-huh. but it's uh it's illustrated by kurt schaffenberger and it's done very much in the style he was using at the time when he was the artist on um the new adventures of superboy i just really got a kick out of it i really like this i was i was glad to find it and pick it up just as you know an oddity that i'd never seen before related to superman and then my biggest score from there the thing i was really happy about is uh, they had a, a, a back issue of Comic Book Artist, which I don't think is published anymore, but this was a hell of a good fanzine from a few years back. Um, this isn't real old. This is uh, August 2000, issue number nine. This was like, I want to say it was like 99 cents or something, but originally this was a $7 magazine. Right. And uh cover feature story on it was all about the Charlton characters um, you know, and having been purchased by DC and all that, it says that there's even an article in here about Alan Moore, all about the Watchmen connection Watchmen. with uh, with the Charlton characters. And then it says there's other stuff in here about uh, you know, like Dick Giordano and Jim Aparo, and uh, you know, different artists. So I'm really looking forward to that because again, comic book artists, that was a great, great book. Yeah, that's uh, that's what Alter Ego spun out of. Oh, okay. 
it it was like the the back half of comic book artist would be alter ego and then alter ego got its own magazine again uh but i collected that through most of 1999 just because i really liked the articles it had some great art i'm flipping through it now and there's just some fantastic artwork through the whole thing so yeah that's where i learned about batman's initial look as a blonde guy in a domino mask in a red costume. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> yeah, that would have been different. With like bat wings. It was really weird. <laughs> but that's what I got this month in comics. So, uh, Not bad. I was pretty hey, I was pretty happy. That, that ended my, uh, my long dry spell. So with that... I don't know about you guys, but my bladder's about to burst. Yeah, so. I'm gonna switch away, switch my drink from caffeine to to fruit smoothie, and <laughs> that can definitely relieve Damn. some bladder tension. <laughs> that sounds good. Well, this will give us a chance to to play some promos for some other fantastic shows, and then we'll be back with uh, the wrap up, folks. We'll have top five and get Chris to read a goddamn superhero comic. There's got to be a morning after. If we can hold on through the night, we have a chance to find the Hey everyone, my name is Michael Bailey, and recently I was overcome by the urge to read my Batman comics again while separately wanting to do another solo podcast. I decided that these were two great tastes that would taste great together, and thus was born Bailey's Batman Podcast. Bailey's Batman Podcast is a weekly program that looks at a month in the life of the Dark Knight Detective, starting with the books bearing a March 1983 cover date, which coincidentally is where my solid run of the characters' comics begins, and moving forward until... well, until at least the books that came out in 2005, because that's where the solid run ends. Each week, I will give you a full synopsis and review of every major ongoing Batman title, with brief stops along the way to look at the important specials, miniseries, one-shots, and Elseworld stories, just to keep things interesting. I'll also be telling you what other books Batman appeared in that month, as well as what was going on elsewhere in the DC Universe. It is going to be all Batman, all the time, as I look at over 20 years of the character's history. The first appearance of Jason Todd. Death in the Family. Nightfall. No Man's Land. All of that and more will be covered on Bailey's Batman Podcast. Every Tuesday at baileysbatmanpodcast.com. Batman created by Bob Kane and George Lucas. Hey kids, comics! Hey Michael! Yes? We have to record a promo for our podcast. I've got one. Read our podcast. Read our podcast. You do know this is an audio medium. Watch our podcast. Well, you can watch podcasts, but not ours, because let's face it, we've got faces for radio. Uh, no, wait, I've got it. Give me a second, right? What, just... Listen to our podcast. Listen to our podcast. Snap it. Short, sweet. I'm liking it. It's good. It's great. Not exactly telling people what our podcast's about, though, is it? We read comics. We read comics. That's true. That's good. Liking it. Liking this pitch. Carry on. Right. 
talk about comics. We do. We talk about comics. We read comics, and then we talk about them because we can't talk about them before we read them. Excellent. Keep going. And then we sing. Badly. Yes, well, badly is purely subjective, but how many other comic book podcasts do you know where people sing? Aches Comics! Every Thursday at aplayland.podomatic.com. And now, for your listening pleasure, we introduce a brand new segment called Musical Interlude. Enjoy. That was Michael Wanmacher from the score to the film, Punisher, Warzone. This album is available for purchase on CD, or as a digital download at Amazon.com. We hope you enjoyed this musical interlude, and now back to the freaks. Hello and welcome back to Comics Monthly Monday, number 34. I'm Scott Gardner, joined by Chris Honeywell and Michael Bailey. And if you hear a bunch of crunching and munching in the background, folks, well, you know, you're just going to have to accept it. We're <laughs> starving and it's the middle of the freaking night. So. It's a 4 a.m. snack time. It is, it is past my feeding time. <gasps> so. Podcasting is hungry work. 
It is hungry. Right. It really is. So, we are going to get into, you know, this segment waxes and wanes as, like, you know, my my least favorite. Sometimes it's my most favorite. But this one, I'm actually looking forward to. I'm really curious what you guys bring to the table with this. I still hate the name, which is Top 5, but since we got <laughs> it's better, the it's, lamest name ever, it's yeah. Silly, it really is. Okay, topic for this time around. Top 5 comics you thought would suck. But they turned out to be, you know, fairly awesome. So, uh, who wants to who wants to go first on this one? You know what? I almost always go last in this. I'm okay. first this time, damn it. So, here we go. Alright. Number five. Believe it or not, Starman. The, um, uh, what you call him? Jack Knight one? I was turned on to this series by, strangely enough, I think this is the only time this ever happened in my entire life. I was turned on to this series by somebody I worked with at the time. And as he was a number of years younger than me, I kind of had my doubts about, you know, his taste in comics and everything. As I re- recall, I could be dead wrong about this, but as I recall, he was really into like Sandman and stuff like that. And I remember having seen the original solicits for the series, you know, that came out right around the time of Zero Hour and seeing the covers. And, you know, it was this guy with aviator glasses and, you know, spiky hair and a black leather jacket with the weird, like, sun design. I just remember seeing uh-huh. those images and thinking, this is so not for me, you know, I really won't like this. But somehow or other, we got into a discussion about things like, uh, like Infinity Incorporated and Justice Society and stuff. And this guy telling me, oh, you know, if you like all that, so you got to be reading Starman. And I was like, really? That, that, it just looks like shit. And he's like, no, no. He goes, you know, don't, don't judge a book by its cover. You know, you'll really, really like it. So I remember going to a comic shop and picking up a bunch of issues, fairly cheap, like maybe like the first story arc and sitting down to read it, really thinking, man, I'm glad I got these cheap because this really looks like shit. And while I never really warmed to the the artwork in that series for most of the series, I loved that series. It was great. The stories totally made up for whatever the art lacked. And uh, today it's one of my absolute favorite series of all times. But went into it totally thinking it was going to suck. Number four... You know, there were a bunch of uh, miniseries that led into Infinite Crisis, which is an event that I do not like. But one of them, again, that I, for some weird reason, even though I had a feeling pre, you know, beforehand that I wasn't going to like Infinite Crisis, I still picked up all of the minis except the uh, the Ran Thanagar War, which I just could not give a shit less about. But uh, there was one, Villains United, which I thought was a, a, a kind of a silly idea and would really be stupid. And it turned out to be the one that I liked the best. And eventually that led into another miniseries, Secret Six, which eventually led into the series Secret Six. Went into Villains United really thinking it was going to be dumb and really, really, really enjoyed it a lot. Mostly because it finally took a character I'd always wanted to see made awesome and made him awesome, which was Catman. I always thought he had a lot of potential, and and it was nice to see somebody finally uh, fulfill that potential. Number three is one that I'm sure is going to shock the piss out of a lot of people, but I'm dead serious about this. Number three is Countdown from DC. 
you know, I went into it. I'm done. Just gonna sigh. <laughs> that it was gonna suck because everybody told me it sucked, and I don't know of anybody else that liked it. But I liked it. I liked it a hell of a lot more than I liked 52, which was one everybody told me was so awesome. And I walked away going, uh, are we talking about the same series here? So, you know, while Man, I'm, I'm thinking the same thing right now, as a matter of fact, <laughs> you know, it's not perfect. And there were there were a lot of elements of the story I didn't like because there was way too much damn Jimmy Olsen in it and way too much Kirby stuff in it. But like the Ray Palmer stuff that was in that series, I liked a lot. And uh, I loved the stuff with Superboy Prime. It was actually Countdown that made me a Superboy Prime fan. The, the one issue where he takes out an entire Earth was phenomenal. The issue where he beats the piss out of it. I can't remember if he actually beats him to death or if he just, like, really, really trashes him. But the issue where he beat the shit out of Mr. Uh, Mixius Spitlick, I loved that because I fucking hate that character. So it was about time to see him get the shit kicked out of him. Number two... This one is just one of those ones. I don't even remember why I picked this series up. This is so not in my ballpark at all. But I did. And probably it was on a suggestion or something. And I I ended up loving it. Was Exiles by Marvel. I'm not an X-Men fan at all. I really don't like alternate universe stories. Because I always walk away at the end going... Why am I, you know, why do I care about an alternate universe? You know, I'm not much of a, like, Elseworlds fan or anything like that. But there's something about that book. It's something about the way it was was written and something about the characters that I just found compelling and I stuck with it. I still haven't finished the series. I have no idea if it went out on a high note or or not. But while I was reading it, I, I think I read, like, the first... 60 or so issues i i enjoyed it i thought it was really really good and just you know it's just one of those ones that uh surprised me because it's just not a genre that's in my wheelhouse at all and number one uh again was one of those ones i heard dog so bad over the years and by the time i finally decided i guess i just gotta read this i just gotta decide for myself read it and was like wow, really? This is the thing that everybody hates? Is the Spider-Man clone saga. I enjoyed the hell out of it. I mean, it's not perfect. It's got its wonky bits and all that. But taken as a whole, I enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, with the caveat that a lot of it was because I read it afterwards. So I knew kind of vaguely where the story was heading. You know, I knew the clone wasn't really Peter and all that. So I had a a leg up on people that read it as it was coming out, you know, that were so outraged by, you know, the the reveals and then taking away the reveals and then giving other reveals, you know, and all the crap that came with that as it was being released. You know, reading it years later afterward, knowing that none of that stuff was really true, helped me enjoy it and i did i I really got a kick out of it i liked the characters and i liked generally speaking what happened in the whole series and at the end of it you know i really felt sad when uh when they bumped ben riley off i thought that was uh I, i thought that was kind of a mistake actually but i understand why they did it anyway that was my top five wow that was pretty five ish of you all right who's going next i'll go next Miko, Miko, 
My number five was New Mutants, which yeah. I was not interested in really. I was, you know, the X Men were sort of enough for me at that point. We'll get to that a little later in the show too. And uh, but the the graphic novel made me interested, but I thought the comic would probably be a crappy version of the the graphic novel. But I ended up like picking up like the first couple years of the comic, I think. Um, and enjoyed it. Number four, and I don't know if this really counts because it wasn't one that I thought was just kind of good. It was one that is like my favorite comic of all time now, which is The Walking Dead. Yeah. I pass, I pass that up. You know, I'd been burned on so many, and Scott was like, "No, you got to read this," and I was just like, "All right, I'll try it out." You know, and. It went into it with super low expectations, so that was awesome. Uh, number three is Black Hole by Charles Burns, which it was an underground sort of thing in the in the 90s, and I thought it was going to be a ripoff of... Da- it looked, the art looked like a ripoff of Daniel Plow's, and it was sort of a big deal comic amongst those people that were reading that sort of the fantagraphics sort of stuff and I just passed on it for years and then I got a trade of it and it was fantastic it was really good and you know I basically was like wow I basically turned, turned my nose up at that for five or six years another one was um, Longshot by what oh, was that Arthur yeah. Adams yeah, Arthur Adams yeah and I and remember Senshi, I think mm-hmm. and I remember I remember being like ah this doesn't look like I'll I'll like it at all but I got it because at that time you know when we were kids we pretty much picked up any number one that came out you know just in case and uh I was sold right from the beginning of that from from I remember I had to get used to the artwork in it but I ended up really liking the artwork. And number one was, uh, this was Gil Kane, right? Who did Amethyst? Um, no, I don't think so. Oh, what the hell is his name? Khan? Ernie Khan? Something like yeah. that. Yeah, Ernie Colon? So- somebody like, yeah. It's Ernie Colon, that's somebody right. Somebody with a colon? <laughs> yeah, and, uh, I remember seeing that and thinking, hey, that looks like She-Ra or something like, you know, it looks like something written for little girls, you know, and lots of pinks and purples and stuff, but it turned out to be really good and uh, surprisingly adult for, for what it looked like. And I, I, and, and I really liked the artwork in it. Maybe it was just because the artwork reminded me a lot of Gil Kane. In, in a lot of ways, I probably still have my amethyst somewhere. I should reread those. But uh, it was uh, it was a total little girl fantasy, though, where it was, where she was a little girl, and when she went into amethyst world, she was you know a grown up kick ass right. princess who rode a tiger and stuff like that. Which it all sounds really lame and girly, but it was really nicely done. It was uh, Ernie Colon that was the mm-hmm. was the artist. I don't know if that's how you pronounce his last name, but that's how it's spelled: C O L O N with one of those funny squiggle things over the second O. Colon, an umlaut. Yeah, that's it. 
but yeah, you, you're not the you're not the only person I've heard uh, you know praise that series and and went into it pretty much the same way, thinking that this was going to be some stupid girly you know flowery magically you know unicorny thing, and walked away going, hey, you know that was actually pretty good. That was actually really engaging. Yeah, I was. Yeah. I, I remember reading. I remember it was one of those ones where you know I picked up number one because it was a number one, and number uh, one. <laughs> Engage, and I made it so. Well, you know, those were back in the days when, again, I, I mean, you know, this isn't me just bashing, you know, current comics, but that was back in the days when comics were cheap enough that you could risk, you know, fifty cents or whatever on a number one, you know, because we did that a lot, where a new number one would come out and you'd pick it up because, you know, hey, you know, as a number one, if it sucks, you know, you, you the most you're out is half a buck, you know. And, and we, we were discovered kids a lot too. Of, we were yeah. we were like, yeah, maybe we'll strike it rich, you know. One day. <laughs> right. And sometimes yeah. it actually works out, like GI Joe number two, you know. Yeah, that's true. Mike. Alrighty, number five is kind of weird, and and I don't know why I picked this up, but I found a copy of Golden Age Green Lantern Archives Volume One, kind of cheap. So I picked it up thinking that I was going to absolutely not like it, like it was going to be kind of stupid because it's Golden Age books and. Scott and I have had this conversation. Oh, yeah. So, turns out to be really freaking good. Really? Um, uh, of the Golden Age, and it was a lot of Bill Finger scripts, and Bill Finger was one of the better Golden Age writers. And some of them were actually a lot more complicated than I thought they would be. Like, once you get past his origin story, it, it, it's just basically Green Lantern helping people. And one of the stories was this confidence gang gets one of their members to pose as the long lost son of these two of this rich couple. And Green Lantern gets involved because he works for a radio company, a radio station. And his girlfriend, Irene, I think her name is, uh, is covering the story and he kind of smells a rat. And you go through the whole thing where the guy actually kind of likes the old people because they treat him good for the first time in his life. Somebody's treating him good. And he ends up turning against the gang, and it ends up that he is the long-lost son of these people. And it was like this twist ending, like, wow, I really did not see that coming. Congratulations, Golden Age. Uh, Number four was the Catwoman miniseries from 1989. I really didn't think I was going to like this, but it ended up being a really engaging story and kind of went more into her background and and made her more than the prostitute we saw in year one. And one of the things I loved most about it is that she was, it was revealed in that miniseries that she was trained by Ted Grant, the Wildcat, uh, to fight. So I like the fact that Catwoman was trained by Wildcat as one of the people that taught her how to fight. Uh, for the longest time, I couldn't get this because it came out in like 88, 89. And as Scott and Chris will, will remember, anything Batman around that time had a price tag on it that meant, hey, you're not buying this uh, because they just want to god awful amounts of money. But thanks to the uh, back issue collapse in the late 90s, <laughs> I, managed to pick, I managed to pick them up at a dollar a piece. So that was nice. Number three, and this is the one I'm a little embarrassed of because I didn't think I was going to like it because I thought it was just going to be a big Superman ripoff. But the first like four or five issues of Icon from the Milestone imprint yeah. were really freaking good. 
I did not know his origin because the only thing I knew about Icon was the crossover with the Superman titles, which was called Worlds Collide, which I did like. Right. But when I when I saw Icon, I'm like, oh, he's he's Milestone Superman. And when I initially read the miniseries, I was like, ah, this is going to be kind of silly. But it turns out that he was an alien that if I'm remembering this correctly, because it's been a number of years since I've read this. He was an alien that assumed the form of the first person that found him. And unfortunately, he landed in the South in the 1800s and was found by a slave. Right. So he became a black man. And eventually, you know, he he rose through the ranks and was this, you know, kind of almost Bruce Wayne wealthy businessman. And one night, uh, this girl and her gang break into his house... And it basically kind of wakes him up that he has all these powers, but he's not doing anything with them. It's just a fantastic... And really, the series was almost as much about Rocket, which was his sidekick, for lack of a better term, as it was about Icon. Uh, so, really, that's all in trade paperback now. So, I heartily recommend those. This one I used to dog on, but I started thinking about it and then realized that I ended up really liking it was the 1989 Huntress series that uh, Paul... Was it not Paul Levitt? Did Paul Levitt write that? No. Joey Cavalieri wrote that and had Joe Staten artwork. And really and truly, while Huntress has always been kind of broken since the end of Crisis on Infinite Earths, as I thought back on me reading the series... I I, I, I kind of think of her more as an underdog character now because she has so much going against her and God help, and God bless her, she keeps coming through. But I kind of, if you're going to do a new origin, the origin that they had was uh, was an interesting update on, on how to do the character. And my number one, it's odd that you guys mentioned this already, G.I. Joe. <laughs> For the longest time, all I really knew of G.I. Joe was the cartoon series. It's what I grew up on. I was seven years old when G.I. Joe came, you know, hit the airwaves, basically. And I remember the commercials for the comics, and I read like an issue or two, but for the longest time, I'm like, God, it's G.I. Joe, it's a tie-in comic, that's gotta suck. And in 1999, I found a huge run of it cheap. This was before the 80s revival started happening, and now these books are, like, god-awful expensive. And I sat down and read, like, issues 27 through 107, and holy crap, it was awesome. Larry Hama built this really complex continuity and made these characters people you liked, and, you know, made me like Snake Eyes in a way that I couldn't on the cartoon because they didn't do much with Snake Eyes on the cartoon because he was mute. And, uh, yeah, that, that's not the character they're going to focus on. So. No, Snake Eyes was like the Wolverine of of the comics mm-hmm. when he was in the comics. His his issues were nin- all ninja and action-packed you know, and awesome. The whole relationship between him and Scarlet... Uh, the the connection to Storm Shadow and how and just the origin of Cobra Commander in the comics was just fan freaking tastic. 
and I cannot recommend these enough. IDW has put like all of these in trade paperback. I don't know if they've completed the series yet, but I know they've gotten to like volume 11, so they're like in the 110s now because they're doing like 10 issues of a, a, a trade paperback. I was kind of disappointed that the uh, trades that were at Tales of Wonder, which was this exhibitor at uh, Dragon Con, only had the issues, that only had the trades that I already had, because I wanted to pick those up kind of cheap, and no, wasn't going to happen. But yeah, G.I. Joe, the Marvel series, fantastic. And I'll go ahead and recommend the Devil's Due series as well. I enjoyed a lot of that. It was a... It picked up through a lot of the Marvel threads, but kind of went off in their own direction and threw in, and you could tell the writers were just as influenced by the cartoon as the comics, so it's a nice melding of that. But really and truly, the classic G.I. Joe series is worth it for issue 100 alone and the return of Cobra Commander and what he freaking does as his like first official act of, I'm back, bitches. So, badass comic books. And that's it. Cool. That was five. We have an official thread for Comics Monthly Monday, in case you folks don't know, over at uh, forumforgeeks.com. And I was going back through the thread, just kind of doing a quick scan, trying to find... I knew that we had had ideas tossed around for this top five segment. Now, I want you folks to go back, pour through the thread... And if I missed any before this one, let me know and, uh, and we'll try to get to them. But the earliest one that I can find here is on page six. This one is from uh, Joe Anthrax, our, our buddy Sean Engel. And he writes, Here, uh, here's an idea for a top five list for Comics Monthly Monday. Lamest superhero villains. So, oh, uh, oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. That'll be our one for next time. So, the lamest super villains. <laughs> I think that'll, that'll be a lot of fun. We got to pick our lamest ones and why we think they're, they're seriously lame. So, that wraps the up Joker. top five. <laughs> the Joker. <laughs> Actually, it might make my list. Oh, God. <laughs> All right, now it's time for my favorite part of the show. Get, Get Chris, Chris to read, read a goddamn superhero comic. comic. And this one should be a whole lot of fun. Yes, this one's actually um this this is actually a sponsored section of Oh shit, well, actually, you this know, whole I show sh- is sec- is sponsored, but you want me to go? You want me to take that again? Because I totally forgot about that. I even have that page pulled up, and I you still mean, forgot mean, all about mean it. Means something that we talked about like twenty minutes ago, and that yeah, you just I know. totally forgot. Okay, I'm just just asking. I'm I'll go back. I'll go back and do too. it again. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> he's the pot smoker too. Yeah, I know. It's bad. <laughs> well, we had this idea a while ago that that the more uh, pot he smokes, the worse my memory gets. So. It's like the Corsican twins. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Wasn't that a Cheech and Chong film? No, it was. I know. All Yellow right. beard. I think you go back and I'll, I'll redo it. No, it was the Corsican brothers. Oh. Yeah. And Yellow. Yellow they were in Yellow Beard too. So now it's time for my favorite part of the show, and this time around, it's sponsored. This segment, this time, this month, is sponsored by Tom Panaris, who writes to us. 
He says, I'd like to sponsor an episode of Comics Monthly Monday. He says, I don't have any special message except to say that I love the show and I'm glad to contribute whatever I can to get, get Chris, Chris to read, read a goddamn, goddamn superhero <laughs> comic. comic. Whatever you can? Yep. Really? Mm-hmm. All right, I got to think about that. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Tom also has a really cool blog called Pop Culture Affidavit. Ooh, I like that title. Where he uh, he talks about a lot of stuff, but he uh, but he's he's got a really big affinity for the '90s era of the Teen Titans, or I guess the New Titans as they were called then. So he talks a lot about them. But there's oh, cool. there's I a lot. Too. He has he also has one of the coolest avatars on the uh, on the Two True Freaks forum. He is the one that has the Mega Force poster. <laughs> Deeds not. Oh, is he Pan, called Pan Pan? Pan? Yeah. Yes. Yep. Deeds not words. <laughs> very Eresian screen name too and he'll know what I'm talking about or maybe he won't but that's the symbology of that name I know what it means I'm watching you pan pan 23 alright <clears throat> oh no time for me to get down to business here the comic I read this month was X-Force number one from 1991 do you remember when you played a video game when you were a kid and you had a joystick and a button and then you play a new video game and you have to go up, up, down, right, square button, plus up, right button, and then the you go, I don't know what the hell is going on. This is how I felt reading this comic. <laughs> it starts in Antarctica with a squinky-eyed mutant named Cable heading his team of mutants against some other mutant terrorist group called the Mutant Liberation Front. They all have names like wrestlers and dress like wrestlers if if wrestlers wore more clothes. The first flight has 50 mutants fighting, and they all talk like Wolverine, except they have kind of sissy costumes. There's a boomer and a feral and even a guy who's named Forearm whose superpower is Forearms. Anyway, they fight, but the bad guys get away and blow up their base. Meanwhile, the Roberto guy that I remember from the New Mutants is being trained by a Jedi version of Professor X to be a fighter and a ruthless businessman. They go all hostile takeover on, a, on of all things, a girly perfume company. During the hostile negotiations, they are taken hostage by a seven-foot Doctor Strange with a big beaten stick. Please help me. I do not know what the hell is going on. (laughs) Then we see Cable building his secret base in the Adirondacks. I want a secret base in the Adirondacks. Then we find out S.H.I.E.L.D. is worried about the Cable guy, so they decide to deploy Weapon X, who I think is Wolverine, but I just don't know anymore. The end. You you know the the guy with the beaten stick was Black Tom Cassidy. Black Tom Cassidy, yeah. He's white, though. Wouldn't it be that, white that does sound like a black guy's porn name, though, doesn't it? Black. No, it sounds like you know two people named Tom Cassidy, and you're like, Tom Cassidy, what? Tom Cassidy beat his wife? No, I'm talking about black Tom Cassidy. White Tom Cassidy Actually, beat his wife up. 
not so much a porn star, Scott, but like you know, like like total, like you need to put some black exploitation music behind me right now, like <laughs> Black Tom Cassidy. Yeah. He's one bad motherfucker. When I'm black talking Tom about Cassidy. Black Tom Cassidy. Yeah, when Black Tom Cassidy hits the street, all the honkies run. <laughs> I'm telling you, Sheriff. <laughs> I will kill every motherfucking one of you. <laughs> Black Tom Cassidy, you're God so damn, hot. God damn you, Black Tom Cassidy, get off of my wife. <laughs> Not till I'm done putting my seed deep in her. That's the first scene of the d- first Dolomite movie is a redneck sheriff bursting in on Dolomite on top of his wife, and then he jumps out the window and rolls down the hill, and like it freeze frames as he's rolling naked down the hill. It's like, Dolomite. <laughs> I, I I highly recommend that movie to everybody in the universe. Have you, have you never seen that YouTube video? Uh, I'm the goddamn juggernaut, bitch. Have you never seen that? <laughs> yes, I have seen that. that. That's Black Tom Cassidy's in that. He's okay. their partners. Well, in a really broke back mountain kind of way. <laughs> yes. By the time Black Tom Cassidy showed up, I stopped trying to keep track of who was who, what was what. I didn't know what was a good guy or a bad guy in this. Well, all I know is there was somebody there. There were people that. This is sort of the reason why I stopped reading Marvel and DC comics during this time period because DC was like you and everybody. Hey, guess what? We got eight million Batman titles and. Marvel's like, oh yeah, well look at this. We've figured out fifteen more mutants this month, and they all have stupid names and ridiculous costumes. And everybody was trying to make their new. Every goddamn person in this talk like when they fought, they all talk like Wolverine. They're all tough talking, and I suspect that uh, Michael Bailey foisted this one on us to just to start shit. Would I correct (laughs) in that assessment, Mister Bailey? I. It was more of an experiment on my part to see how Chris would handle. Th- I mean, uh, yeah, how Chris would handle this. Um, because Chris, your your main problem with this book is that you were not twelve to fifteen years old in nineteen ninety one. I was trying to get into that personal headspace. Oh, I thought, you, I thought you were about to say in nineteen ninety one you were trying to get into the pants of a twelve to fifteen. <laughs> <laughs> my mind went into a different direction. Uh, that was actually Wednesday. it occurred. It it occurred to me uh, after I suggested this, like two weeks after I suggested that I actually covered this book on an issue episode of Back to the Bins when we were on hiatus, when you were just moving down to Florida. So that that's kind of I feel bad now that I've suggested it because you know one of the shows already discussed it, but I just Not wanted like to know this, how. I guess. Dude, I, totally I, I just do not remember that at all. Yeah, because you well, you actually gave me shit because I said that this was a book you probably wouldn't want to cover, and that was when you wanted to do New Mutants number ninety-eight. Ah, okay, I do remember this so, now. But no, I, I it's not for like my own personal amusement that I wanted to kind of slip this under the door and run away as Chris <laughs> reads it. <laughs> but I, I honestly wanted to, as somebody who liked Burns X Men, for example. And somebody who read the New Mutants, apparently, uh, yes. what they would just think of being dropped into this testosterone, you know, I, adolescent. I, I had gotten fantasy. out before I had gotten to this point to avoid that exactly, actually, in in comic book world. I, I would see the comics and like the artwork in it. 
at, at first I really hated it, but it was the towards the end I was like, okay, not so bad. But it was still, it was just like that. Like everybody wanted to be Todd McFarland, and it had that sort of finicky, fidgety, lots of lots of cross hatching, lots of line details in the hair and stuff like. You know, and the sort of everybody's face is kind of shoulder pads. Yes, yeah, so, yeah, 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 yeah. And you know, it just came off as sort of a, you know, actually Todd McFarlane's art. When I look back at it, doesn't look as impressive as it did when it was brand new. And the people who copied him, even it, it was just, it was like there was a room full of comic nerds, and each one of them they said. All right, you make a new a mutant and come up with a flashy name with it and design it, and we'll throw them all into the story and have them fight out and see who people like the most, and they'll get their own book eventually. But it was like a million throwaway characters, and it was the whole thing of like, yeah, as a mutant liberation front, good or evil, and the whole thing with Roberto becoming like a sam like mixing like samurai training and. Uh, and like Wall Street, you know, the guys like Gordon Gecko, Qui Gon Jin, Xavier, teaching him. And the first thing they do is do a hostile takeover of a perfume company. And in the negotiations, they actually bring out their own supervillain to like threaten. It's a comic book. I understand it's cheesy, but it was just. Honestly, what the hell is going on here? None of it had any kind of like character resonance with anybody. It was just sort of like, let's throw everybody together and set up fights and throw in a million mutants and you know what had already become just a cliche of of mutant land of of like who's who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? You know because the regular humans are coming after the mutants, so the mutant liberation front doesn't you know seem to be you know they're not like just like going out and killing civilians as far as i could tell so it was hard to tell who was that that's just sort of a cliche of all that and it didn't really do it in any kind of thoughtful manner to make me sit and go so what are the moral you know the moral ambiguity of it was just basically it came off to me as like let's fill up a book with potential wolverines and and they'll all fight, and, and the one that remains standing will end up being, you know, hopefully it'll sell a million more books with hologram covers and variants. So well, you can well, tell well, I was a big fan, big fan of it. It wasn't, I, it wasn't, you know, honestly, it wasn't a terrible comic to read. I wasn't like slogging through it, going, oh, geez, when is this going to end? It actually was kind of a fast read because it's just basically sort of people yelling at each other and threatening to kill each other and then getting split apart before anybody could kill anybody else. And yeah. Huh. yeah. Well, what, what if I told you that that Qui-Gon Jinn Xavier character ends up being kind of like a Highlander as well? Oh, sure. <laughs> why not? Because eventually he dies and he's an immortal. And I think they try, if I'm remembering the story correctly, they, it was dragging Roberto into that. But, uh, at this point, I, I started. That's when I started leaving those comics behind because they were getting it. They were doing this whole thing of like uh, more complex adult stories, but they weren't really. They were still the same old kitty comics, just draw with the. Li- I liked 
I shouldn't even say kiddie comics, but, you know, comics that could appeal to from kids to adults. And then the, and their version of adultifying them was sort of actually like a combination of commodification of just trying to exploit the hell out of whatever you could get money out of. Right. And dra- draining the good natured humor. And there was humor in it, but it was all snarky Wolverine humor. I'm going to keep saying Wolverine over and over again because is is Wolverine Weapon X? Is that am I? No, that that was the that was the new Weapon X that was so Mega Red, isn't it? No, that was. Oh, is it Deadpool? Yeah, I can't keep four. track of all this goddamn shit, man. I, f- I forget what this guy's real name was, but he was just the Weapon X of that era. It's not Deadpool. No, Deadpool was part of the Weapon X program, but went on his own. Wow. I'm Weapon lost. X and Deadpool actually fight in the next issue. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I figured he was Wolverine because I was like, "Yep, bring in Wolverine for issue number two. To or no, or actually, Wolverine was a uh, <laughs> Wolverine was busy at the time being drawn by Jim Lee and adjectiveless X Men because that that was the around this time. And that wasn't is, a uh, bad book. Mostly, mostly. Um, I think X-Force came out in July and X-Men came out in September. It was a big fucking deal in 1991 when these books came out. Mm -hmm. So much so that I, who had never read an X title, picked up both. Just because of all the light that was shining on them. I remember, I didn't make it past issue three of X-Force. I made it to like, like to the Executioner song. For uh, for X Men, and that led me buying some other X titles at the time. But um, the, it's kind of hard for me to bash this book because I have such fond memories of the time period. Because you know, I was fifteen; I was heading into tenth grade. You know, this you know, trying to enter the larger world of comic book collecting. Because at this point, if you weren't reading the X Men and you were reading comics, you might as well have been wearing a dress. It was the thing you had to do. Yeah. And me, who who had mainly stuck to the Superman titles, it was like, well, I'm going to jump into this. And Rob Liefeld gets a lot of crap. And a lot of that crap that he gets, especially around this time period, is richly deserved because, well, one, he had a, he had a habit of stealing page layouts and covers and such. He was, he was a big swiper is the best way to describe that. And two, his artwork, while dynamic, wasn't all that good. Uh, He can't draw feet. Uh, When he would eventually get into Youngblood, there would be these ankle-high hills that would be in every panel. In every picture? That's awesome. So so he wouldn't have to draw feet. But you really can't deny that there is an energy to this book. And I think that's what fueled it and what kept it hot for the longest period of time. Also, it was just the zeitgeist of this period of comic collecting that the teenagers who were coming into it liked the big guns, the big pecs, the shoulder pads. All They're the, like wrestlers. It, yeah. Well, see, it's yeah, funny that's... you bring that up because you know what I really took away from reading? Because, you know, I, I had never read this before either. I, I didn't read any of this stuff from, from this era. Somehow or other, I managed to live and collect and be very, very, very active in comics all through this era. Yeah, I missed all this shit. All this X-Force, X-Men stuff, 
the the image valiant all that somehow i just remained like blissfully ignorant of all of it i knew it was going on i just wasn't involved in in any of it i just stuck with my stuff and it just all kind of happened around me but i remember you know when this came out and all that but reading this for the first time and walking away i kept thinking of uh i think her name is joey adams the the blonde actress from chasing amy the part yeah. where she was talking in the movie about how hard it was for her to break into to comics with what she was doing because this was the era of the the big pecs, big tits, big guns. And I looked at this book and I said, I think this is exactly what she was talking about. I think she was specifically talking about like this book because that's pretty much what I took away from this was, was exactly that sort of impression I think this is the kind of this is kind of the epitome of that era, at least as I remember how things were going on. Shockingly, uh, Young Blood number one, which was also done by Rob Liefeld, kind of looks at this book and goes, "Oh yeah, I'll see that and raise you 10. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't hate it, but much like Chris, I was lost in a lot of it, which made me feel very uncomfortable because I don't like being lost. In, in a Marvel or a DC book. I, I When that happens, to me it feels like something is fundamentally wrong because I'm very invested in both of those universes. Well, it's not like I'm jumping well, in after some 20-year lull going, yeah, gee, but, I don't know what's happening. But you, know? but you had to be invested in the whole mutant verse right, type thing yeah. to know what would that... The, so usually that bothers me too, and I would have been on like Wikipedia looking up all the characters to figure out what their deal is. But when they throw them at you a million at a time there, it didn't bother me that I didn't know who they were because I was just like, what does it matter? They're just, here's two, you know, I couldn't tell by looking at them which one was I'm supposed to be rooting for. Right, yeah. But I was just like, I don't care, though. They're, I'm not like... So what is this guy's motivation for fighting forearm, you well, know? See, that's again, you know, goes back to, to my statement of this being kind of the epitome of that era because that was one of my biggest complaints. And, and to a, a certain degree, this complaint remains right up to modern day with comics is that I feel like a lot of comics these days, or excuse me, back in this time and even some today, that profess to be superhero comics, and I'm not talking some obscure title like uh, like X Force. I'm talking sometimes even your mainstream stuff like uh, like Batman. You can pick it up and you can walk away from the end of the story going, you know what? I don't know who the bad guy was in this. I don't know who the hero was in this. And that's kind of, I mean, granted, I know Cable and I know some of the other characters, so I know who you were supposed to be rooting for, but I can easily see, Chris, how you walked away from this book at the end of it going, you know what, I'm not quite sure who the who I'm supposed to be rooting for with this. Well, I you know, I mean, totally they, 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 there were references to other mutants that they admired or at least had respect for and saying, well, you know, and then they were in the mutant liberation front. And just from... Up to the point, I you know I stopped reading, probably like eighty seven, eighty eight. I, I you know I never read past X Men, New Mutants, you know right. any of the other books after that. But I you know I always got you know Magneto was always sort of a character who was shades of gray. You know you you could you could understand why, like that you know you would ha and 
they always work the ambiguity of like, well, the Mutant Liberation Front is a terrorist group, but the only reason they're a terrorist group is because they're not working with the government like Cable was or loosely affiliated with, you know, what I mean? Mm-hmm. They, so, so they were, you know, viewed as a terrorist group, but they were mostly possibly interested in just keeping, you know, the, say, the like in God Loves, Man Kills, keeping the religious fanatics from just you know, lynching and killing off mutants. So, I, you know, I got that. I, I got, I was thinking, you know, maybe this mutant liberation force, maybe they're not going to be straight up bad guys. Maybe there's going to be some crossover or, you know, or whatever shade of, shade of gray, but there wasn't, it, there wasn't anything in there sufficiently enough to make me interested in whether that was going on. It was basically like, all right, we're here to fight them. Here they are. They're fighting, the, and their leader does a quick walk through and walks through the wall and disappears. And it's all, it's all just sort of fights and and setup. But it it's all without any kind of resonance to it. You know, I mean, I don't know when you read when you read stuff like The Walking Dead, where you know a character will say one little thing, and all of a sudden, you know, you're getting sort of an idea of maybe something that happened to them in the past. Or something like that. You don't get that from this book. You, if the you know writer's going to tell you what happened in the character's past, they're probably going to have like Nick Fury reading it out of a dossier. You know, I, I I could never get interested in it in that stuff because to me, I don't mind being manipulated by art, like having my emotions m- manipulated and all that. If it's working for whatever that piece of art is. But I always found that sort of stuff, like especially the the X-Men and the Batman stuff at the time, to be manipulative to the point of where it was like, if you want to read these comics and know what's going on, you have to read all the comics. You got to go, you know, you got to pick up 15 different X-Mutant titles and uh, maybe even the variant cover. Maybe they'll even throw it in something you could so it was just like it to me it always seemed like a marketing gimmick and that and that always turns me away you know that always instantly puts me on guard and going like i yeah i just don't like that well to a certain extent i'll agree with you in 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 specific case in some cases it was let's just throw a bunch of crap out there and see how much they'll buy uh, the X-Books really got bad with that around this time period. The The first really big crossover after this was something called the Executioner Song, uh, which crossed over from Uncanny into X-Men into X-Factor into X-Force. Right. And um, but... I'll just say I'm talking right out my ass with all this because I've never read any of this stuff because I was instantly biased again. I could be totally wrong. No, it's always no, my in, suspicion. In, in some cases, you were right, but then there were other cases like the Superman books, for example, where you were buying four titles a month, but they were consistently giving you, uh, you know, even though the up until the death and a little bit after the death, uh, but and as, but through the death and all that of Superman and, and the world without a Superman and, and, and uh, reign of the Superman. You know, the the writers and artists would do, like, their own stories, but there would be a through line. There would be, like, an ongoing narrative going on. 
So with the Superman books, it was almost like you were getting a weekly comic. With the Batman books, except when they crossed over into each other, and on the whole, just about every Batman crossover I read, I've enjoyed. Uh-huh. So, uh, you know, Nightfall, Night, Night's Quest, Night's End, Dig That, Prodigal, which came after all of that, was an excellent storyline where Dick Grayson put on the Robin costume when Batman, when Bruce Wayne basically went to get his head straightened out after everything that went down. Uh, great storyline. Uh, and, and even like the bigger ones like Contagion, which was kind of silly, but it was basically outbreak in Gotham City. Mm-hmm. That's the best way to describe that. But beyond that, you know, the Bat books were kind of sticking to their own. So I, I think really and truly Marvel was a much bigger offender oh, yeah. of just putting books out there and Scott well, the Batman stuff, even the Batman stuff, I don't think of it more in the main Batman titles, but the Batman Year Ones and the Dark Knights and all the variations and graphic novels and stuff. But most of that stuff for the most part was way higher quality. It wasn't getting churned out. It was it was definitely cashing in on the Dark Knight and the movie phenomena and the mm-hmm. the increased you know, but it was being treated like your you know top tier comic you know for the most part Batman got they made sure Batman had a a level of quality whereas I don't think they really practice that with the X-Men stuff. I'm sure there was a lot of it of a very high quality, but it seemed like a lot of it was, yeah, throw a shitload of spaghetti on the wall and see how much of it sticks. Well, what really happened was Jim Lee came on to X-Men, Uncanny X-Men, as the penciler. And at some point in that run, it wasn't the early issues, but at some point in that run, he fucking exploded. And Todd McFarlane exploded over at Mm -hmm. Spider-Man. But they weren't really writing their own material. So when Todd got to do his own book in 1990 with the adjectiveless Spider-Man, it looked pretty. But that first story arc, Torment, was shit. Complete and utter crap. And, and and literally his process for writing a comic would be draw to draw like five pages, put them on the floor, and see what order they went in. Uh. So it, it looked nice, but I mean, and after that, the, did you read much adjectiveless Spider-Man, Scott? Uh, no, I, you know, I don't even think I finished Torment, to be honest with you. I, I, I loved... Uh... You know, the, the stuff when he was just the artist, and I believe it was Michelini? Michelini, yeah. That was doing amazing. And then McFarlane got all big-headed and thought he could do it all by himself, and he went off and did, you know created the adjectiveless. <laughs> and I could be wrong, but I yeah, I don't think I even finished Torment. Because yeah, there was a story, there was a five-issue story with Wolverine that had them fighting the Wendigo. Yeah, no, I didn't make this... it that far in this small town and basically it was a rash of child killings and right in the first issue i go it's not the wendigo it's probably this fucking cop turned out to be the fucking cop so 
or whoever what human being was killing these children. Uh, Ham-fisted doesn't even begin to remotely describe Todd McFarlane's writing style. No, I I personally think he's an awful writer, like just bottom of the barrel. So around 1990 as well, when Louise Simonson was writing New Mutants and Rob Liefeld came on as as the artist, he caused kind of a big splash as well. And suddenly the X title started getting more and more popular because of the artists. And what happened was is that Bob Harris decided, well, that's where the money is. And pretty soon they had investors to answer to instead of just, you know, being a private company. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 you know, Chris Claremont, after 17 years, left the title. Now, some would argue that he needed to leave because his stories were getting kind of convoluted and he wasn't wrapping up anything. But at the same time, I mean, if, if you're the, the person that basically put that franchise on the fucking map, which is what Chris Claremont did, I mean, he had a lot of help from his artists, but he was the constant through line of the X-Men. He was the one kind of like constantly tending the garden. And for an editor to look at him and go, nah, this this young hotshot that just turned 21, we're going to side with him because he's selling the books. I mean, that was pretty much the writing on the wall of what was to come. And Adjectiveless X-Men wasn't a bad title. Uh, it was loud, and sometimes the writing was kind of crap. But <laughs> I may make fun of him, but I liked Omega Red. I thought Omega Red was a great design. He was a fantastically designed character. And, you know, they they did a whole long shot series. And, oh, by the way, that guy Shatterstar, that was in X-Force number one, Chris? The guy with the swords? Yes. Uh, That's Longshot's kid. Or was for a very long time. Yeah. I have a vague memory of that now that you say that. So, you know... Everything you guys said was true, but like I said, if you were like 15 at this time, this book was the shit. Yeah, it's clouded. Yeah, it's <laughs> well. See that that lends into something. I, I uh, one of the point I wanted 43. Yeah. You know, so there you go. <laughs> yeah, that lends into something else. I, I wanted to address though is that you know what you had said, Mike about you know, all the shit that Rob Liefeld gets these days and how justified it is, because I have to, I have to take, you know, some exception with that, that I don't think it's justified. Now, do I think, you know, this is great art? Hell no, I don't. And I'll give you a perfect example. Just looking at the cover of this book, look, when your nutsack is bigger than your head, there's something wrong with the arm. Uh-huh. Literally, you need to go to a nutsack. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this guy's head could fit up his own ass. There's something just not right with that. I mean, I look at these ginormous shoulder pads, all the pockets. All this is everything I hate about this era of comics. However, I don't put the blame for that on Rob Liefeld. I put it on those kids that were 12 and 13 years old at that time that grew up with this stuff, ate it up with a spoon, spent, you know, millions and millions of dollars on this stuff, made guys like Rob Liefeld and and Todd McFarlane huge, huge, huge stars. And then when the whole thing fell apart for a number of different reasons, then all of a sudden... 
Rob Liefeld goes from being held up as some sort of icon and god of this era to suddenly he's the whipping boy that everybody points to and wants to blame for everything that was wrong with that era. And it's just not right. I mean, well, because he, you know, he's no more to blame than anybody else. And in a lot of ways, I don't think he's any worse than anybody else, you know, art wise or anything else that, that was in that time period. And, you know, going to conventions and handing the guy a copy of, uh, you know, how to draw comics the Marvel way to get a laugh is just, it's fucking cruel, you know? I, mean, it's, I didn't ever think that that sort of shit was funny. Rob Liefeld, from what everything I've ever heard about him, is a, is a hell of a nice stand-up guy. And I don't understand why there's this need in the fandom to, to, to hurt the guy. I mean, he was just a part of this era as much as anybody else was that was creating comics at this time. So I, I, I don't... Cue Boy George music. For, <laughs> for what... For, for my comments that set off this, I said some of it, and it was specifically the art swiping that I was referring to. Right, right. What I'll give him. But I have long been a proponent of the fact that comics fell in 1993 and, and, and the Depression really started in like 1995 in uh, looking back. It was a perfect storm of fucked up. You know, you had the teenage kids buying up copy after copy, so the comics companies were printing these things like, you know, it was going out of style. I mean, fucking X-Men number one by Jim Lee had 8 million copies printed with five different covers. Right. I mean, it's, it's just so... But then, you know, the speculators were to blame. So it was the speculators, it was the fans, it was the artists, it was the companies. I mean, it was, to, to say it's one person, I think, is folly, and I totally agree with you on that. You know, I am actually... I have defended Rob Liefeld on a number of occasions. I did an entire episode of view. My second or third episode of views from the long box was devoted to saying, Hey, it's not all that bad. I have just about every image book he's done. They were given to me somehow. I, I don't know. I, I, I spent money on it, but I also remember someone paying me to take it away from them. I'm, it was weird confluence of events. That led to that. Uh, I got them on eBay cheap back around 2002. Let me put it to you that way. But while the quality of the books isn't always good, and while a lot of Rob Liefeld's later concepts, like when he got into Youngblood and was doing his whole universe, was basically he was taking archetypes from DC and Marvel and doing his own versions of it, which is another reason people give him crap. I think there is so much energy there and there is so much potential for good stories, but the time period just wasn't going to allow for that. You know, Youngblood as a concept, I think is pretty cool. It's a government sanctioned superhero team that has its own marketing department that has, you know, like people that come up with the costumes and the names and they're sent on public missions. Meanwhile, there's like this international team that no one freaking talks about that goes and does the, the scary shit that doesn't get publicized because all of the limelight is on the, 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 the public heroes. That's a great concept. Unfortunately, the execution was terrible. So... You're right, Scott. 
<laughs> it all and comes I'm back right, to that, doesn't and it? Everyone's right. Well, you know, it, I wasn't saying that sarcastically either. By the way, I just want to make that clear that I wasn't giving you shit there. Right? Is that you're right? You know, people give him crap, and it's not really all deserved. There's got to be a morning after. <laughs> it just reminds me of that, you know, that thing where uh, I'm sure you've heard this before. You know, about when in our culture. There, there's this need to both build up celebrities, you know, to a point mm-hmm. of of like a saturation point, uh-huh. and then tear them down. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't understand that, but I definitely do see it. You know, especially now that it's really been pointed out and demonstrated to me, I definitely see that where that is a real thing in our in our popular culture that happens all the time. And that's kind of what I see or, or, or how I think this whole thing played out with Liefeld is that, you know, he was built up to some ridiculous the more, point. The more success you have, the more there's yeah. some people, there's just very few who avoid that whole, like, the, the only one I can think of off the top of my head in modern times is like Spielberg never got, like, torn down. All the big ones do. And the Beatles never really got to the point. Right. Well, John Lennon got dragged through the mud a lot. Right. And then like, shot. Yeah. See, and, I yeah. think it's made worse and, and to me, more tragic in, in this particular instance because I think that this is a, a, a perfect example of somebody that was built up and and it makes his har- his fall that much harder because... I think he was built up before he was really ready to be built up. I mean, oh, definitely. So then it makes it that much easier for the people that are now embarrassed that because I think that has a hell of a lot to do with it is embarrassment that they look back on this and go, God, I can't believe I ever liked that. You know, I can't believe I ever bought. Yeah, it. so they take it out on so him. They take <laughs> it out on him because and he was. Meanwhile, he was back. like twenty years old and yeah. getting a lot of money and. So it's getting a lot of attention it's and all the geek hangover. Yeah, but it's, <laughs> yeah. it's because this here's a guy that you know I look at this art and while I see it and there's a lot of things I could nitpick and go God I don't like this I don't like it I look at the anatomy here and blah blah blah. I also by having a, a, a quote unquote professional eye for this sort of thing after thirty some years of reading comic books. I can also see the great potential that's in there, and I can tell that this is a young artist that needed some refinement, some training, and, and some experience. time and experience time, yeah. in the in the thing, and didn't get it. So he went overnight, seemingly, from you know hot new artist to oh my god, you know what I mean. And so that's what it really, it's so easy to, for people to look back on this and go, wow, you know, look what crap this was. And I, can you believe we ever were suckers for this one? Well, yeah, I mean, because there's no difference between this and looking back to, you know, the earliest days of, say, you know, George Perez or John Byrne or, uh, you know, any of those guys, because none of them come out of the gate you know, looking like, you know, the, the top of the line artists that they eventually be. I mean, everybody starts out rough. I mean, I'm sure that every artist that's ever been in comics looks back at their earliest days 
And you know, has well, even th- if they started out great, twenty years down the line, when they look at the stuff starting out, that compared to what they're doing, it's always going to pale, you right? Know? And and I think that this was an example of of this guy getting a huge, high profile book far too yeah. soon. You know, far- it would have been better if he languished in like Charlton Comics or something for a few years with nobody right. noticing him and just practicing and drawing and practicing instead of all of a sudden becoming celebrity and with all of a sudden expectations and super expectations and responsibilities to keep right. the money rolling in. Right. Cause what, I mean, Mike, do you know his history prior to this title? I, uh, I heard he died of a heroin overdose. <laughs> no, he didn't. No, actually oh, his new that's... book infinite, the second issue comes out tomorrow. Um, or today, as we record this, <laughs> he was the son of a preacher, right? That the family was having some kind of money difficulties, so he was trying to break into comics. His first high-profile gig was the Hawk and Dove miniseries from like 1988. Uh, I kind of vague, 87, eight, yeah. 88 that Carl, that that Carl Kiesel wrote and inked. Yeah. And actually, if you look at the artwork in there with Kiesel's inking, it's, it's pretty neat looking. And then he was offered some position. If I'm remembering it correctly, he was working for DC and then he got a, a couple of assignments at Marvel and then he got the new mutants gig. And that's where he broke big. And, you know, co-created Cable, and there's controversy around the creation of Cable and all that. And then he got X-Force, and it was like a biscuit after X-Force came out that they all jumped ship to go do uh, Image Comics. And at first, apparently, he was going to try to do X-Force and his work at Image, uh, but he just couldn't. So then he created uh, Youngblood. And Youngblood was actually part of a pitch he had at one point to do uh, a Teen Titans book over at DC. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a lot of weird stuff in his history that you know. But 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 basically, New Mutants was where he got huge, and he joined the ranks of Todd McFarlane and Jim Lee. Right, and those were the guys that, and and Wilsh Portacio too, and those were the guys that went off and formed Image and suddenly they weren't just making their page rates. They owned the characters, so everything went to them. And, you know, when when you go to making pretty good money to making holy shit, that's how much money I'm making, it's it's probably a heady experience that I hope to go through. Well, <laughs> when you're that young, too. No, if right. you went through it now, you'd, you, you'd be able to deal with it a lot better and know what to do with it and... Would I would imagine dodge a bunch of bullets that they would walk right into being 20 years old. I know if I was 20 years old and somebody started handing me shitloads of money, it's like the, I'd the, be the, dead. The ones that survived that era are the ones that had a business sense about them. Like McFarlane right. knew how to run a business. Jim Lee knew how to run a business. And yeah, when people started griping about his comics, he just started making action figures. <laughs> and Jim Lee went on his own and then sold to DC and now he's co-publisher of DC Comics. Mm-hmm. And now Bob Harris, who was the editor on this book, 
is the editor-in-chief of DC Comics. Mm -hmm. And Rob Liefeld has a new Hawk and Dove series with DC Comics. Everybody that worked for Marvel at this point or worked with these guys in the 90s are now slowly making their way over to DC Comics. There was a guy that was writing books in the early 90s named Hank Canals. He actually wrote the first issue of Youngblood, and I use that with quotes because if you've ever read the first issue of Youngblood, it was barely written. Uh, he is now the vice president of digital books over at DC. So basically it's like this. If you worked with Jim Lee at some point in the 90s, just go apply for a job at DC. You're probably going to get it at this point. <laughs> it's amazing to see the number of people and the names that keep popping up. Well, once he get once he got in there, he was probably able to bring <coughs> in all the rest. Excuse me. It's like I was smoking there for a second. Yeah, that's, that's what it sounded like. That's Chris's job on this show. I know. I haven't even been smoking that much in this episode. <laughs> Trying did to, you switch I'm to trying, the electric cigarettes? No, I'm trying. Uh, well, I'm trying. To, uh, there's there's technical difficulties with the electric cigarettes. Put the new right. batteries in. We have gone just phenomenally long in this episode, so I'm gonna call it a day with that. Um, it is a day too. You can't yes, technically it call it night anymore. <laughs> <laughs> for uh, the sun hasn't started coming up yet, but it won't be long. For next time around, forget Chris to read a goddamn superhero comic. I am going to go down. with something I pitched last time around. I'm going to go with the original three-issue Savage Dragon miniseries. Oh. So we're going to kind of stick with the 90s, but... Uh, I'm thinking that we're going to go from one extreme to the other. I'll be very curious to see what I've heard a lot of good this. things about Savage Dragon over the years, so I'm looking forward to this. I have absolutely no idea what to expect from it, except a lot of people that I know I, really like that book. I want you to keep this phrase in your mind. And don't. And it's not me being snarky, because I think Scott may, Scott may agree with me on this. It is what it is. And it makes no apologies for it. Right. And that is why is it's what cool. makes it. I like yes. stuff like that. Yeah. Very much so. Very much so. All right. So I think that wraps us up for this time. Uh, a couple quick things. Uh, I, again, I want to uh, put the plea out there to the listeners. Um, if you enjoy this show, as you're listening, go to the uh, social media of your choice. You know, be it Twitter or Facebook or Google. Put it on the Twitter. Whatever. And uh, let others know that you are listening to this or any other episode of, you know, your uh, Two True Freaks affiliated shows or, hell, any podcast that you're listening to. I'm sure that they would appreciate it. It lets others know about it, gets the word out there. So uh, I, I just like that. hear, yeah, do it definitely with every other people's podcast yep. because I want to hear about them. And lastly, I want to point out that I do believe, if I'm not mistaken, that since Michael Bailey has joined this show, I do believe that this is the very first episode where we have not 
talked about fast food. We made it through the entire oh my episode wow. without talking about fast food. Wow, so you're right. Yeah, now before we start talking about Oh, fast I'm starting to get hungry now. I wonder oh, what time McDonald's at this. Chick-fil-A spicy chicken <laughs> sandwich in the fridge. <laughs> you can sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. Simply click the PayPal link on our website, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. Anytime you plan to visit Amazon.com, please be aware that if you use the Amazon.com link located on our website, www.2TrueFreaks.Libson.com, Two True Freaks will receive a referral bonus for any items you purchase. There is absolutely no additional cost to you whatsoever for doing this. All proceeds go directly toward keeping new episodes of all your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated podcasts rolling, and it really helps us out. So please... Use our Amazon.com link anytime you plan to visit Amazon.com. Welcome to Amazon. I love you. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. Libson is spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N. You can email Two True Freaks directly at twotruefreaks at gmail.com. Join our forum at forumforgeeks.com where you can discuss all of the shows on our feed with us and your fellow listeners. You can find Two True Freaks on Facebook. Just search for Two True Freaks. And hey, you can friend me, Scott Gardner, on Facebook too. My name is spelled S-C-O-T-T-G-A-R-D-N-E-R. You can friend me on Facebook too, if you can find me. Now available, Two True Freaks t-shirts. See our website for details. Two True Freaks is a very proud member of the Comics Podcast Network. 
You can check that out at www.comicspodcast.com where you can hear our new episodes when we put them up. We are also members of the League of Comic Book Podcasts. For more information, visit comicbooknoise.com slash league. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? Thanks for listening. And join us every Monday for new episodes of Two Two True True Freaks. You will. Both of us. Alright. <laughs> I was waiting for you to go, Oh, <laughs> I know. I, I was. My, Michael Bailey, I've been texting with Michael Bailey, and it, it, the second you did that, like, one of his popped up, and I was like, oh. It ruined the moment, man. <laughs> it ruined everything. He always ruins everything. I'm very interested to see. I thought that I, I was like, okay, He's either right. this comic was something that they all really liked, or it was something that they all I, see, really never, hated. Yeah, I've never read it before. So I, was I have like, a feeling he was trying to set you up just slightly with this being a very fucking '90s book. Yes, that, it, it, that is commonly ragged on today because Rob Liefeld is pretty much like the whipping boy of the comics community these days. However, you know, I never I never understood the Rob Liefeld hate, you know what I mean? We can Was see the artist that. or the uh, the writer. The, the artist. Okay. I forget who the hell the writer was on this. Fabian Nicieza. Is it? Mm-hmm. I didn't realize you were here yet, Mike. I just called him in. I'm glad I got all the mic bashing out of the way before he called him in. The bottle's sitting out there on the counter. It's still full. Hasn't been open or anything. I was like, ooh, I can have my salsa now. So I go over to get the special... Um, it's those baked... You know, like they do like baked lays and that. But it's the yeah, baked yeah. scoops. Yep. And there's I- crumbs in the bottom of the bag. I'm like, alright, who the fuck ate this? And why did they eat it without eating salsa? I mean, that's the whole purpose of those chips. So I was, I was pissed. They were eating scoops full of air. Yep, exactly. You know, and there's like umpteen different things that she gets for them for snacks. I, I usually get like one if I'm damn lucky. And they go and eat my one thing of snacks while they've still got a whole cupboard full of their own snacks. It's like, you God, need to you, you need to, you know how like in your younger days, you might have had maybe a lockbox full of porn out in the garage. Now you just need a lockbox full of snacks. <laughs> no, I really Sneak don't. Alright. Let me bring us back in. Sure. sure. Alright, I can do that as we're all crunching and munching. <clears throat> Alright, hang on a second. Everybody's so chipper for 4 a.m. I love I it. I know. Oh, I meant to ask Mike. We're not going too late for you, are we, Mike? No, I have methamphetamine, so I'm fine. <laughs> Did you read much adjectivalist Spider-Man, Scott? Scott? Oh, I'm sorry. I He's was muted. muted. I was <laughs> muted. Okay. Two True Freaks has been brought to you today by DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy, and by the letters F and U. <laughs>